There is a rule to understanding life in South Florida. Alligators don't give to political campaigns, and the fanhools do. The most telling thing about Alfie Fanhul is that he can get the President of the United States on the telephone in the middle of a blowjob. That tells you all you need to know about their influence. Carl Hyacin We consider ourselves the classic American success story. We came here and worked very, very hard. Alfonso Fanhul Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 144 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Rise of the Cane Kingdom, part two. And I hope that you've already listened to part one. Otherwise, this won't make as much sense. I mean, a lot of it will still make sense, but it'll be much, much better if you've already listened to part one, which was episode 143. And those quotes at the beginning of this one was, of course, from the famous South Florida writer, Carl Hyacin, who is a novelist and a columnist and has been a longtime critic of so-called Big Sugar in Florida, and by the way, who um, had characters based on the Fan Hool brothers in his novel Striptease. And the second quote was, of course, from Alfonso Fan Hool himself, the elder brother of the Fan Hool family, who are now the first family of Florida Big Sugar Barons. So we're going to be picking up the story of the rise of the Cane Kingdom in Florida, the Sugarcane Kingdom in South Florida, approximately from where we left off last time in the aftermath of Castro's revolution. Before we get into that real quick, though, I have some Patreon shoutouts. Wow, it's only been, I think, a little over a week since I did last episode, and a bunch of awesome people have already signed up to help support the show over at patreon.com slash profcj. So big thanks go out to Miguel, Danny, Bruce, Claire, Matthew, and Lee. Thank you all very, very much for stepping up to help me keep doing what I'm doing. And also an Amazon thank you to Danny for getting me the book Remember the Liberty off my Amazon wish list, a book that came out recently about the attack in, I think it was 1967, of the USS Liberty by the Israeli Air Force, which is a really bizarre bizarre incident. The incident itself and the cover-up, I mean, it's just incredible. So, thank you, Danny, for that book. Anyway, on to an overview of looking at kind of the industry, um, the sugar industry and its evolution entwined with politics since 1959, with a primary focus on the Florida sugar industry. So, to kind of summarize and recap a lot of things that I already covered last time, and then I'll get into what happened later with these things this time. Um, the emergence of large-scale sugarcane growing in Florida, it's been in many ways, quote-unquote, helped by the U.S. federal government in contravention to free market forces and principles. So, Long story short, the federal government subsidized Everglades agriculture, first and foremost, through drainage and flood control, and also by having state and federal scientists do a lot of research on how best to grow on drained muck soils. And then the government also helped with assuring a supply of cheap, pliable labor and 
crucially with keeping foreign sugar largely off the U.S. market, except in small, limited uh, quotas. And also the U.S. government has been crucial in keeping the sugar price in the U.S. artificially high relative to the world market price. So this is an industry, sugarcane in Florida, that not only would it not exist, it also would not be profitable or very unlikely it would be anywhere near as profitable as it is without massive amounts of government help literally for almost 100 years. So this is that story, um, touching on all these themes I mentioned last time of political entrepreneurship and public choice and all these kinds of things. So last time we kind of ended with some of the changes that occurred in American sugar generally, and also in specific regards to Florida sugar, in the aftermath of Fidel Castro's 1959 revolution, his takeover in Cuba. Now, this revolution gave a huge boost to domestic U.S. sugar production in general, and Florida sugar growing in particular, for two reasons. First, as I mentioned in the last episode multiple times, Cuba had previously been the U.S.'s number one foreign source of sugar. But of course, soon after Castro took over there, the U.S. government ended Cuba's sugar quota for the U.S. market. Secondly, the timing. Castro's revolution happened while the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was well along the way of draining that area that would become known as the Everglades Agricultural Area, that land just south of Lake Okeechobee, which, once it was drained, became the best sugarcane growing land in Florida. This is something I covered a few episodes back in Draining the Swamp. And third, soon after Castro's revolution, Many Cubans fled to the U.S., most of them ending up in Florida. And those who fled Castro first tended to be the wealthier elite Cubans, and many of them had previously been in the sugar industry in Cuba. And once in Florida, they brought their human and financial capital, in some cases at least, with them and brought it to bear in trying to build new sugar empires in Florida. And at least some of them were extremely successful. As I mentioned towards the end of last episode, the most important of these Cuban exile families who got into Florida sugar were the Fanjul family, and that's spelled, by the way, F-A-N-J-U-L, if you're interested, if you want to Google these people or look any of this up, Fanjul. The head of the family who moved to Florida was Alfonso Fanjul Jr., often referred to as Alfie, and he was a grandnephew of a man named Manuel Rionda, who'd previously been one of the largest landowners in Cuba and, of course, was big into sugar. And they had other family connections to other uh, major sugar growers in Cuba as well. Once they left Cuba, the Fanjul family quickly began building a massive sugar empire in Florida and eventually even got into the Dominican Republic sugar growing market and eventually would overtake even the U.S. Sugar Corporation, USSC, which for a long time had been the biggest sugar grower in Florida. Now, more on the Fanjuls in a bit, as they're perhaps the epitome of sugar political entrepreneurs um, and I'm going to talk more in detail about how they built their empire and what they've been up to. Other companies started up in Florida or relocated to Florida from elsewhere in the aftermath of Castro's revolution. And again, another way the timing was interesting was this is just as Florida is starting to really boom in population after World War II. 
And this is, of course, going to give it increased clout in the U.S. Congress, specifically in the House of Representatives, and also in the Electoral College. So it's going to mean that Florida is going to matter more to American politics than it had previously. So a few other um, companies that got up, uh, got going or moved to Florida or whatever in the aftermath of Castro. One was the Cuban American Sugar Corporation, which had previously been based in Cuba, but owned by Americans. Um, prior to Castro's revolution, it had actually owned land both in Florida and Cuba. Well, in the aftermath of Castro's takeover, the Cuban American Sugar Corporation established the Florida Sugar Corporation, and they moved a mill from Louisiana all the way to Florida. The president of Cuban American Sugar was a man named David M. Kaiser, who interestingly was also president of the New York Philharmonic at the time. And William Pauley, you may remember him from last episode. Um, Pauley spelled P-A-W-L-E-Y, by the way, if you're interested. William Pauley, that guy who was a friend of many important people, including Alan Dulles, who had acted as a contact go-between between the Eisenhower administration and Cuba's pre-Castro dictator, Fulgencio Batista, and who, by the way, was also... Pauly personally involved in planning the Bay of Pigs invasion and some other covert ops and things in those days. William Pauly helped bail out a company called the Talisman Sugar Corporation, which was a company that had been set up by Cuban exiles with the financial backing of none other than Henry Ford II. By the way, at least 10 of the Cuban exiles who worked at Talisman are known to have been participants in the Bay of Pigs invasion, that ill-fated, half-baked attempt to try to invade Cuba and overthrow Castro in 1961. Now, William Pauley was a very interesting character. I mean, everything I've already said about him so far, probably the type of person who listens to this show, it would pique your interest. But just a little bit more on his story. Pauly was born in South Carolina, but spent a significant amount of his time living in Cuba and then in his later life, especially after Castro took over, um, living in Florida. Before World War II, Pauly was involved in the aviation industry and spent some time living in China and was actually involved with business dealings with the government of Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese fascist, excuse me, nationalist, who was backed by America at the time. In 1941, Pauly was involved with putting together the famous Flying Tigers squadron of American aviators who flew for the nationalist Chinese in the war against Japan prior to American entry into World War II. Despite the fact that he was a Republican, after World War II, Pauly was appointed by Harry Truman to be America's ambassador to Peru and then Brazil. When Eisenhower came into office, Pauly was even more politically hooked up because he was personal friends, like I said, with Alan Dulles, and maybe a little bit more distantly, but nonetheless friendly with Eisenhower himself as well. Pauly was involved during the Eisenhower days in planning Operation PB Success, which was the 1953 CIA operation that overthrew the democratically elected president of Guatemala. This, you'd have to jump in the way, way back machine to DHP episode 32 for more on that story if you're not familiar with it. Pauly really is a character out of a novel like American Tabloid by James Elroy, or maybe Havana by Stephen Hunt or something like that. 
In nonfiction terms, he kind of reminds me a lot of the characters you encounter when you look into well-researched books about the power elite, you know, a book like Family of Secrets by Russ Baker, one of these characters almost a little bit like a George de Morinschild. Like George H.W. Bush in the 50s and 60s, and a lot of other similar sorts of characters in the early Cold War years, Pauly seems, by all the circumstantial evidence, to have been acting as an unofficial CIA officer, even when he was nominally, supposedly just a private businessman, even when he wasn't being an ambassador. He seems to have been like an unofficial CIA operative. In other words, he is what you might call an edge man of the power elite. He's a guy who moved pretty smoothly and seamlessly for a while between the spheres of international business, diplomacy, and covert ops. And check out DHP episode 108, by the way, for more on that concept of an edge man in the power elite. Pauly, by the way, I have no idea if this is connected to anything he had done previously, but it's just interesting how often this happens to these sorts of people who are in these worlds. Pauly will die of suicide by gunshot at the age of 80 in 1977 in Miami Beach, supposedly because he was suffering from a very bad case of shingles. That's entirely possible. I don't know anything that would cause me to think there's a conspiracy here. But again, it's just amazing how often people who are in these sorts of circles will die mysteriously. And again, calls to mind guys like George DeMorenschild. Several other major companies and co-ops for sugar production are going to be begun in Florida with Cuban exiles, human, and in some cases, financial capital in the early 60s. A lot of them lost significant wealth and property in Cuba when Castro took over, but, you know, some of them still were able to get some of their money out or had some of their money already stashed elsewhere. And William Pauley helped a lot of these Cuban exiles transition into Florida sugar, not just at Talisman, although that was his main company at the time. Still at the time, remember, the sugar market in the U.S. was tightly controlled with quotas, not just to keep out foreign sugar to a large extent, but even specifying who could produce how much domestic sugar every year. And at the time... Right after Castro's revolution, Florida's share of the domestic sugar quota was very low. It was even less than Louisiana's, which wasn't that much in the grand scheme of things either. Florida sugar growers would need changes to the so-called Sugar Act in order to increase their quota so that they could increase their production and make more money. And at the time, both Florida's governor and legislature began loudly calling for that sort of a change. The Sugar Act of 1962 increased the domestic share of the sugar quota overall, in part to make up the slack of the U.S. not buying Cuban sugar anymore. And after this was passed, Florida and Louisiana began battling over their respective shares of the quota. In other words, how the Department of Agriculture would specifically divvy up the domestic quota. In addition to that, there was a battle even among domestic sugar growers just in Florida, as newcomers to the scene wanted to have larger quotas, which would have to come at the expense of more established Florida sugar companies, while of course older companies were lobbying to try and protect their position. And again, political entrepreneurship creates this situation of it's a zero-sum fight rather than a normal competitive market situation. The USDA's standard procedure at the time was to base how the quota was apportioned, base the quotas off of previous year's production figures. So obviously, if you were a new producer 
that had just recently gotten set up, this would be a problem for you and you would want to change that methodology and get yourself a bigger quota. And Florida was able gradually in the decades following Castro's revolution to get itself more and more of a share of the overall U.S. sugar quota. So the Sugar Act of 1965, again, benefited domestic producers. And again, Florida sugar growers were able to benefit significantly as the Agriculture Department, the USDA, worked out the details. In the 20 years that followed the Sugar Act of 1965, Florida sugar was involved with a battle trying to defend its gains in the U.S. market from the rise of high fructose corn syrup, and also trying to defend itself and its position relative to other countries besides Cuba, which were trying to move into Cuba's spot and get more sugar exported to the U.S. market. So countries such as Brazil, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, Peru, they were all trying to fill the void left by Cuba at the same time Florida was trying to do it as well. So it's very complex and Byzantine um, political wheeling and dealing during these years over the sugar question. And of course, when you have these systems of highly controlled industries and quotas and all this, it creates bizarre imbalances somewhat reminiscent of the Soviet Union. So for example, in 1968, sugar prices were rising, and yet U.S. cane growers had surpluses that they couldn't sell because they'd already met their quota for that year. So, you know, very Soviet-sounding mismatches of supply and demand. Gail Hollander writes in the book that I also referenced a lot in my last episode, Raising Cane in the Glades. She writes, quote, With respect to U.S. sugar policy, the administration of President Richard Nixon seems to have been even more schizophrenic than most. End quote. Nixon's agriculture secretary supported increasing domestic producers' share of the quota, but Nixon himself leaned more in favor of freer international trade in sugar, in part to try to score points with third world countries to keep them from ending up in the Soviet orbit, to keep them happy. Interestingly, our friend William Pauley, who was friendly with many in the administration, including Nixon himself, remember, Nixon had been vice president under Eisenhower, so, you know, he's in that whole eisenhower dulles uh, milieu. William Pauley tried to leverage the administration to help his company, Talisman Sugar, and some of the other Florida sugarcane companies as well. Pauley's letters to Nixon on behalf of Talisman and other Florida sugar companies began actually all the way back in 65 when Nixon was out of office and was practicing law. And kind of funny, it shows you how friendly they were that that he thought it could be this informal. The letters from those years before Nixon got elected president began, Dear Dick. Although after Nixon became president, the letters got a little bit more formally addressed. The Secretary of Agriculture, at the behest of Nixon and John Ehrlichman, responded to Pauly that basically they couldn't do anything to help out talisman sugar without action by Congress. So at that point, Pauly started focusing his lobbying efforts on key Republicans in Congress. And in part as a result of the work Pauly and other Florida sugarcane lobbyists did, the 1971 Sugar Act saw Florida growers yet again make some gains within the quota system. These gains saved the Talisman Sugar Company, which had been in a bad financial state before the quota got rejiggled, and so Talisman was able to be made financially solvent, and this enabled Pauly to sell the company. Apparently, he wanted to get rid of it. He sold the Talisman Company to 
a company which is very important in Florida called St. Joseph's Paper Company, which was owned by Ed Ball. Ed Ball, very interesting, one of the largest landowners in Florida during his lifetime, and a member of the DuPont family by marriage. Now, I say landowners, I guess technically you could argue he wasn't a landowner, he was like the administrator of a trust that owned just absurd amounts of land in Florida, but, you know, in practice he was like a giant land baron in Florida. In fact, Florida historian Gary Mormino has said that Ed Ball may have been the most powerful Floridian of the 20th century. Ed Ball, like I said, member of the infamous DuPont family via marriage, Ball ran the trust that was set up by Alfred DuPont after Alfred DuPont died. Now, Alfred DuPont was a bit of a black sheep within the family, and he had relocated to Florida. Of course, the DuPonts mostly were based in Delaware. He relocated to Florida in the 1920s and had acquired large business interests and land holdings in Florida in the late 20s and early 30s. And as a result, when he died, Ed Ball ended up in charge of the the trust, you know, the foundation set up by DuPont with all of this wealth and land. By the way, interesting side note, in the early 1960s, when Walt Disney was trying to figure out if and where to build a bigger version of Disneyland in Florida, what would ultimately become Disney World, Walt Disney called Ed Ball, who controlled about a million acres in Florida at the time, most of it in North Florida and the Panhandle. And when Disney called, Ed Ball didn't even know who the hell Walt Disney was. And Disney said that he was interested in buying some land in Florida, and Ball basically said, call back in a week, I want to look into who you are first. Who is this Walt Disney character? And when Disney, in fact, called back a week later, Ed Ball had looked into who he was, and supposedly what Ball said to Walt Disney was, son, I don't deal with carnival people. It's kind of funny. Had Ed Ball been willing to deal with Walt Disney, Disney World might very well have been built someplace in the panhandle, you know, someplace like like Port St. Joe instead of Orlando. But anyway, just an interesting side uh, story. There's a lot of interesting side stories in Florida history. I mean, it really is fine. You want to see like all the weird, bizarre stuff in a Carl Hyacin novel or on the Florida, um, Florida Man Twitter account or whatever. Like, yeah, that's our history. It's very bizarre and seedy. Anyway, five years later, when William Pauley, five years after he sold Talisman Sugar to St. Joseph's Paper Company, when William Pauley committed suicide, the Miami Herald called him a, quote, Florida legend of industry, diplomacy, politics, and international intrigue, a swashbuckler in a gray flannel suit with a bit of a Midas touch, end quote. So yeah, he's like a character out of a James Elroy novel. Now, that 1971 Sugar Act was supposed to remain in place for three years, at which point the Nixon administration planned to significantly overhaul America's sugar policy, but this ended up never being done, largely due to the distraction of Watergate, which, of course, distracted from a lot of things in that era. Meanwhile, sugar prices were again rising in the inflationary years at the end of the Nixon administration and into the Ford years. When the Sugar Act was not renewed in 1974, this caused a lot of dismay on the part of domestic sugar producers, and U.S. sugar policy would be kind of ad hoc for a while. Another potential thing causing concern for sugar growers during this time period was the rise of high-fructose corn syrup, or HFCS. 
you've got a situation in which sugar prices are going up. And of course, the U.S. sugar price is already artificially high. And then you've got the inflation of the 70s. This makes alternatives that previously might not have made any economic sense as substitutes for cane sugar. This might make those alternatives actually make sense. So this is when, for example, Coca-Cola and several other major soft drink makers in the United States began using high fructose corn syrup around 1974. So yeah, when sugar prices had been lower, high fructose corn syrup hadn't made economic sense for a lot of food and beverage uses. But in the early to mid-70s, with the spike in sugar prices, suddenly HFCSs are becoming a competitive option in the eyes of companies that use sugar for making their products. When Jimmy Carter came into office as president, conflict over the future of U.S. sugar policy was reaching a boiling point. Sugar was one of the few commodities that actually was starting to experience a falling price in the late 70s, when so many other commodities were continuing to go up in price. Sugar, which had been going up in kind of the mid-70s, was starting to go down. Sugar producers obviously wanted to bring about higher prices, and interestingly, so too did the makers of high-fructose corn syrup. Because, of course, again, remember, if sugar prices start to fall too much, not only does that hurt the profit margin of American cane sugar growers, but if sugar prices you know, get too cheap, then high-fructose corn syrup is no longer able to compete with cane sugar. So there's this weird convergence of two competitors that normally kind of compete with each other in a zero-sum sort of way, but now they both want higher sugar prices for their own respective reason. Carter himself tended to instinctively lead towards free trade on a lot of things, including sugar, but he also wanted something that kind of contradicted that whole idea, which is he wanted a fairly stable world sugar market. Well, there's going to be fluctuations if you have a free market. In the summer of 1977, a coalition in the Congress put something together that came to be known as the De La Garza Amendment, which was named after a Democratic congressman from Texas whose last name was De La Garza. And this was inserted into that year's farm bill. About every five years, usually, the Congress passes what's called the Farm Bill, which just kind of sets up the framework for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's policies. And in 77, they're apparently debating a farm bill, and De La Garza gets this amendment stuck in. The amendment called for a higher and more stable sugar price than what the Carter administration was push pushing for. Um, this, again, just happened to be a price that would be positive for the makers of high fructose corn syrup and therefore for, you know, big corn which is its own lobbying group, which, if anything, is even more powerful than Big Sugar. By the way, one of the biggest supporters in the Congress of the De La Garza Amendment was none other than Republican Senator Bob Dole of Kansas, by which I mean that rectangle with a lot of corn. Gail Hollander writes this about the political background of the De La Garza Amendment, quote, Dole intended to leverage his way into the White House by exploiting the political geography of the Sweetener Coalition, which he had activated. And what a coalition! Alongside beet and cane farmers, sugar processors, and congressional representatives stood corn farmers, processors, their representatives, the Corn Refiners Association, and the likes of giants such as Cargill, Staley Manufacturing, Amstar Corporation, Anheuser-Busch, and Archer Daniels Midland, end quote, 
which, you know, look some of those up. Look up Archer Daniels Midland, for example, and how much of political entrepreneurs they are. Now, this amendment was passed by the Congress, and Carter, who wasn't really supportive of the idea, was persuaded to support it once a provision was added that said that it would be nullified if the U.S. ratified um, a proposed international sugar agreement that was being floated at the time. Um, and Carter, I think, thought he could get that agreement ratified and then this thing would go away anyway, but the Senate refused to ratify that agreement, that international agreement on sugar. So the sugar situation ended up being chaotic during the Carter years. The sugar industry tried to get past something called the Sugar Stabilization Act in 1979, but it failed. And these were some tough years for domestic sugar. They still were, you know, relatively protected and all that, but not as much as they wanted. And by the end of the Carter administration, due to international factors, including weather and pest issues, sugar prices were starting to go back up, but some of the sugar growers in Florida had already gone under by then. So not all of them were around to kind of reap the, the rebound. At the start of Ronald Reagan's presidency, Reagan claimed to oppose subsidies and price supports and protectionist quotas in general, including for sugar, and spoke in the rhetoric of free markets and free trade. But as in so many other areas of policy, when push came to bloody well shove, Reagan's free market principles proved to be just talk. In 1981, as Reagan assumed office, sugar prices were still going down, and Reagan decided to ultimately support sugar price supports as a way to curry favor with certain members of Congress in order to get some support for his proposed budget. So, for example, Democratic Senator John Burrow of Louisiana, when asked if his support could be bought for Reagan's budget, supposedly replied, no, but it can be rented. In fact, Reagan ended up endorsing full-blown import quotas on sugar in order to push the U.S. price for sugar up more. The Food Security Act of 1985 would be the next major piece of legislation in the U.S. that would touch on the sugar question, and it made a lot of what Big Sugar wanted into permanent features of law. Overall, the bill actually lowered the price support for many agricultural commodities, but sugar was, as it often is, treated differently. According to Gail Hollander, this act had four main effects on sugar. The first was continuing to keep domestic U.S. sugar prices above the world market price. The second was, along with that, keeping conditions favorable to the continued rise of HFCS. Third, decreasing foreign sugar imports into the U.S., which, as always, would harm many Caribbean countries' economies. And fourth, increasing U.S. domestic sugar production. So, yes, in this era, the Reagan administration was sailing very hard against the wind and against the currents of the free market in regard to the sugar question. So, Big Sugar continued to do very well. In a 1993 report, the GAO, the General Accounting Office, said that the U.S. government's sugar policies were costing consumers about an additional $1.5 billion annually relative to what consumers would be spending if the U.S. simply had free trade in sugar, and that the benefits of these policies were concentrated mostly in the hands of a very small number of major sugar growers. 
Surprise, surprise. Again, public choice economics, concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. In 1995, groups with different motives, including groups with environmental motives, such as the Sierra Club and the Audubon Society, and groups with kind of financial motives, such as the Hershey Company and Coca-Cola, etc., like corporations who wanted to buy sugar at the lower world market price, these groups these unlikely bedfellows, they joined forces to form something they called the Coalition to End Big Sugar. And would that they had succeeded. This group looked to work with professed free market conservative Republicans who might potentially oppose the sugar program if they really believed their rhetoric. Remember, this is 1995. This is shortly after the so-called greatly exaggerated Gingrich Revolution of 94, where the Republicans took Congress. Sweeping both houses of Congress for the first time in, what, like 40 years or something. And a lot of these guys talked a good game when it came to free markets. So this coalition to end big sugar, they think, all right, here's these guys who claim to be for free markets. Let's get the damn sugar subsidy. They're not direct subsidies, but the sugar um, protectionism and price supports Let's kick those out of here. As a result, the battle over the 1995 Farm Bill would include a lot of debates over getting rid of things like price supports, and sugar would be a huge part of that political battle. But when the dust cleared, ultimately the sugar program was still basically in place. The bill actually did cut the price supports for many other commodities, but not for sugar. This led to increased overproduction and actually exacerbated the situation when world sugar prices um, crashed a few years later. Now, after this failure to get the sugar program terminated in the 1995 Farm Bill, the Coalition to End Big Sugar put out a pamphlet that was kind of like a parody. It was made to look like a sensationalist tabloid, and it was entitled The Bittersweet Times. Its headline story was... Aliens earn millions in government bonanza. And the story was about the Fan Hool family. A caption with a picture of the Fan Hool brothers read, These non-U.S. citizens receive $65 million every year from the government sugar program. Gail Hollander writes of this, quote, Thus, the discourse of national identity was now deployed against the Florida industry, as opponents portrayed it as greedy, foreign, and un-American, overlooking the history of protectionism that had fostered the transition of U.S. sugar sourcing from Cuba to Florida, end quote. In 1996, a Republican congressman named Dan Miller, who represented Florida's 13th district from 1993 to 2003. He actually, even though he was a Florida congressman, he tried to challenge Big Sugar's privileges with an amendment. And initially, he seemed like he was going to succeed. It seemed like, wow, some of these Republicans who talk about freer markets might actually do something about the sugar situation. And then, at the last minute, five of his own co-sponsors flipped and voted against Miller's amendment, and those five were the margin to defeat it. Those five congressmen, coincidentally, I'm sure, had all received fairly recent large contributions from the sugar industry. In the aftermath of this, Big Sugar started targeting Miller and kept giving lavish contributions to candidates who would run against him. 
By the way, just an interesting side note, the leader of the group that defended Sugar's privileges against Dan Miller was Congressman Mark Foley, who, like Miller, was a Republican from Florida, although Foley's district included a lot of the actual sugar lands. Foley had been and continued to be after that vote defeating Miller's anti-sugar amendment. Foley continued to be one of the biggest recipients of Big Sugar's money in all of Congress, which is saying something. And obviously, unlike Miller, Foley didn't mean it when he talked the typical Republican game of freer markets, etc. Mark Foley, by the way, you may or may not recall, became much more famous in 2006 when he resigned from Congress due to a scandal about him sexting with underage male congressional pages. Now, interesting in connection to that scandal that eventually came out, while he was still in office before that scandal broke, Foley had for a long time been a big mover and shaker in pushing for tougher laws against things like child porn and child trafficking and so on. So this is from Wikipedia summarizing Foley on this, quote, In the House, Foley was one of the foremost opponents of child pornography. Foley had served as chairman of the House Caucus on Missing and Exploiting and Exploited Children. He introduced a bill coined the Child Modeling Exploitation Prevention Act of 2002 to outlaw websites featuring sexually suggested images of preteen children, saying that, quote, these websites are nothing more than a fix for pedophiles, end quote. As it was written, the bill would have prohibited commercial photography of children, and it failed due to the unmanageable burden it would have presented to the legitimate entertainment industry. In June 2003, he wrote letters to the governor and attorney general of Florida asking them to review the legality of a program for teenagers of a Lake Como nudist resort in Lando Lakes, Florida. Foley's legislation to change federal sex offender laws was supported by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, America's Most Wanted host John Walsh, and a number of victims' rights groups. President Bush signed it into law as part of the Adam Walsh Child Child Protection and Safety Act of 2006. Foley also succeeded in getting a law passed that allows volunteer youth-serving organizations like the Boy Scouts of America and Boys and Girls Club to have access to FBI fingerprint background checks, end quote from Wikipedia. So, yeah, Mark Foley, aside from, you know, being a complete tool for Big Sugar, is also pushing all these laws against child porn, etc. at the same time he is engaged in inappropriate texting, I think including... Um, you know, sexually explicit images with underaged male pages in the Congress. And one more interesting side note on this tangent is that I find it interesting. I don't know if there's any connection between Foley, um, with Foley or not, but I find it interesting that this is during the time that the Speaker of the House, you know, during the, the breaking of the Foley scandal when it eventually came out, the Speaker of the House was none other than Republican congressman from Illinois, Dennis Hastert, who, of course, eventually got into trouble for financial misconduct, which was in connection with trying to cover up his involvement with sexually abusing minors in years gone by. 
Hastert did actually go to jail, not for the sexual abuse, but for improper financial transactions in trying to cover it up. And he actually was, I looked this up, Hastert was released last month, July of 2017, after serving 13 months of a 15-month sentence for, quote-unquote, felony structuring, and also lying to the FBI. So understand, he wasn't busted for any of the actual sexual abuse, which the story was that he had molested young athletes when he was a wrestling coach, but supposedly due to the statute of limitations, even though Haster admitted that he had molested those youngsters in years gone by. So, I went on that side note, which had nothing directly to do with Big Sugar, but just, you know, into the background of some of these people. Because, as I always try to make the point, there is such a thing as the cacistocracy, which is spelled, I think, K-A-K-istocracy, which means government by the worst. The worst tend to rise to the top. These people tend to be scumbags most of the time. And they also very often tend to be hypocrites. And very often the ones who are the worst scumbags are the biggest hypocrites. You know, the ones who speak out the most against exploiting children are the ones who actually are themselves exploiting children. The ones who bash homosexuals are the ones who eventually get caught with like five underage uh, male prostitutes or whatever it is, right? The ones who are the biggest on getting the rich to pay their fair share are the ones that get caught eventually, you know, dodging tax laws, etc., So anyway, back to the sugar story. In 1996, there was a little bit of a battle when Vice President Al Gore introduced a plan that would take 200,000 acres of land in the EAA out of sugar production. And he also supported during that time a proposed one cent per pound tax on sugar, which was supposed to help fund restoring the Everglades ecosystem. Now, obviously, Big Sugar was not happy about those things. And you get some strange bedfellows in the opposition. So, for example, in 1996, both Jesse Jackson and the AFL-CIO, who normally, you know, go along with Democratic politicians, they opposed Gore's sugar tax in the name of protecting the jobs of workers in the sugar industry. And, of course, Big Sugar was more than happy to play along with that narrative of, oh, by golly, uh, if you if you tax us to help clean up the Everglades, by golly, it's just going to, you know, hurt the, the jobs of, of, of some middle class people that work for them. And it's like, yeah, that, that might actually be true that that might happen. But is that really what the sugar, you know, CEOs are, are concerned about? I mean, they seem pretty happy to throw a lot of their employees under the bus when they have to. But anyway, in 1999, the federal government actually bought the Talisman Sugar Plantation, what had previously been William Pauley's company, um, and then was bought by the St. Joe Company. Well, the federal government bought the company from St. Joe in 99 for the cost of $133.5 million. And weirdly, Talisman was still allowed to use the land rent-free for five years if they wanted to. And instead of using it themselves, the Talisman Sugar Company sold the rights to grow sugar on that land for five years to none other than U.S. Sugar Corporation, right, USSC, and Flow Sun, which is the Fanhul Brothers. As of 2001, the government sugar policies 
resulted in adding $1.4 billion in costs to consumers in the United States and in giving an extra $560 million to the sugar growers versus what they would make without the government's protectionist policies and other forms of supports. And Big Sugar, their job now is relatively simple. They now only have to worry about the farm bill, which, like I said, is usually renewed every five years or so. And they just have to make sure that they get that right from their perspective and that they keep their protections and price supports in that for their industry. This is... You know, the farm bill, it's a big, complex omnibus bill, which basically sets out the rules for everything the USDA is going to deal with. And of course, that's quite a lot. And the fact that they, Big Sugar basically just has to focus on this one bill that only comes up once every five years or so. They've got this enormous advantage against people who want to get rid of the U.S. sugar policy as it currently exists. They, the sugar industry, are able to focus, like the proverbial cliched laser beam, on this one bill every few years and paying off whoever needs to be paid off to make sure that, come what may with other agricultural commodities, sugar gets its industry protected. And this is obviously an extremely clear-cut, real-world case of public choice economics at work, concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. Now, as far as how things are currently, as far as I know, nothing has changed much since 2001, as far as Big Sugar, other than a few things related to kind of environmental restoration and that sort of thing. But the U.S. sugar market is still very, very protectionist, and there's still significant price supports to the domestic sugar industry, and still Americans pay, um, you know, in a given year between two and three times what the overall world market price is for sugar. And of course, there's the side effect, too, of high fructose corn syrup has like taken over a ton of things. And I'm no expert, but I know at least some experts do say that as bad as cane sugar might be for you, high fructose corn syrup might be worse. So there's that. And President Trump, as far as I know, has absolutely zero interest in any sort of change to the status quo regarding sugar. I mean, he's protectionist in general, and he's gotten support from big sugar. And to be fair, so would Hillary Clinton. So I really doubt that if she had been elected, she'd be pushing to change America's sugar policies either. And more on some of that in a bit, but as far as I know, all of the right hands in Congress keep getting greased by Big Sugar, so I wouldn't expect much change anytime in the foreseeable future regarding U.S. government's sugar policy. But I want to talk a little bit more about the Fan Hools, because their story is so crazy, and how they've been able to do what they've done. It's just incredible. They really are just blatant and shameless. When you look at the history of Florida sugar since 1959, and especially looking at the last three or four decades, the biggest people in the industry are the Fanhul family. The Fanhul family's American Sugar Refining Company has the following brands under which you might see sugar in the store. Domino, Florida Crystals, Red Path, Tate & Lyle, and C&H. And by the way, Florida Sugar Growers Cooperative, which is the third largest sugar grower in Florida after the Van Hools Company and then also U.S. Sugar. Florida Sugar Growers Cooperative um, sells most of the sugar they produce actually to the Van Hools Sugar Refining Company, American Sugar Refining. So even the sugar produced by this other group is 
refined by them and then also marketed under those same brands, Domino, Florida Crystals, etc. In 1998, Time Magazine had an article entitled Sweet Deal that said the following, quote, The name means nothing to most Americans, but the Fanhuls might be considered the first family of corporate welfare, end quote. And I don't know if they really are, number one, either back 20 years ago or if they are now, but certainly they're way up there, and they're very good at what they do. By the way, I just want to mention an important source for a lot of this info on the Fan Hools, aside from some of the books I've already been referencing and some, you know, assorted articles and also videos, some of which I'll link to in the show notes. An important article, which I will also link to the show notes as well, is an article entitled In the Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner, which was published in Vanity Fair in 2001. So I'll be referring to that a lot in this section as well. So, looking at the Fan Hool family, you've got Alfonso Fan Hool Jr., also known as Alfie. He is the eldest and is the most responsible for the family's success in America. Then you've got other brothers. Um, the other one that's really prominent is Jose Fan Hool, who is also known as Pepe. And then other brothers, Andres and Alexander. Now, in addition to those brothers, other members of their family and their extended family are also involved in the family's complex labyrinth of companies and subsidiaries and all of this. And this gives them a lot of leverage to give a lot of money to politicians, because, of course, each member of the extended family and um, other high-up people in their companies can give money as individuals, and then the companies themselves can give money. So it's often hard for investigative journalists to even say for certain just how much money the Fanhul Sugar Empire has actually given to politicians in a given election cycle. Marie Brenner writes on the origin of these guys getting into Florida Sugar, quote, The defining moment of Alfie Fanhul's life came in 1959, when Castro's rebels threw their machine guns down on the conference table at his family's headquarters. The room was decorated with maps indicating the wide sweep of the Fanhul and Gomez Mena properties, a total of 150,000 acres and 10 sugar mills. They were trying to explain to us the process of what they were going to do and how they were going to take our property away, Fanhul said. Fanhul was 21 years old and had recently graduated from Fordham University in New York. Quote from Fan Hool, I said, this is not the law. I was young, but I was not brash. End quote from Fan Hool. He had grown up in a world of bribes, watching his father pay mordidas to President Fulgencio Batista, which he says were the cost of doing business with dictators. The Fan Hool stayed above the fray of Cuban politics and refused to listen to rumors of Batista's brutal practice of torturing his enemies. End quote from Brenner. After Batista fled Cuba on New Year's Eve 1958, essentially turning the country over to Castro, Alfonso Fanhul Sr. was arrested by Castro's militia, but soon released. That summer, Pepe and Alfonso Sr. came to America, thinking that Castro's revolution probably would be short-lived, and they left Alfie, Alfonso Jr., in Cuba to try to run the family business, but he was harassed and allegedly shot at by Fidelistas, so he left, too. Now, I've got no love for Castro and communism, and I 
have some sympathy for the many Cubans who, you know, lost property and things like that when Castro took over. That said, what bothers me about the Fan Hools is the path they took to success in America. They took the path of the political entrepreneur. And so they have built their wealth at the expense of the American consumer and the American taxpayer, rather than doing it, you know, honorably and morally by simply um, competing effectively on the free market. So you'll see as we go, right? Um, once in America, Alfie was told by his grandfather that he had a personal responsibility to try to rebuild the family's fortune. And lucky for him, as I kind of said at the beginning of this episode, it was, in a lot of ways, the perfect time to get into sugar growing in Florida. Again, due to the CNSF drainage project and the ending of all U.S. sugar imports from Cuba. So the Fan Hools coming to America, and a lot of these Cubans who came soon after Castro's Revolution, they came to Florida, and a lot of them did well for themselves. A lot of them were either entrepreneurs or educated professionals, and many of them did very well for themselves. And a lot of them, you know, had to learn a new business or, or something like that, but the Fan Hools were able to just jump right into sugar again, and were able to take advantage of this timing of the political and economic situation. And again, there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of circumstances. It's how they do it that I have a problem with. After the Fan Hools left Cuba and, and settled for good in Florida, they started buying a lot of agricultural land south of Lake Okeechobee. Some of it was already sugar land, and others of it was, you know, cattle ranches and vegetable farms and things that they converted to sugar. And before long, they had 180,000 acres growing sugarcane. And of course, like U.S. Sugar, they use the H-2 workers to do the labor. U.S. Sugar, of course, had already paved the way by getting the H-2 program set up and all that so that they could have this cheap, easily exploitable workforce. In fact, Alfie himself said in the article by Marie Brenner, quote, What really made this thing take off was the development of the farm workers program, end quote, by which he means the H-2 program. I'll talk a bit more later in this episode about some of Big Sugar's controversial labor practices up through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And time and again, it seems the Fan Hool family's sugar plantations come up as the worst offenders in that regard. The Fan Hools will get even more heavily and blatantly involved in political entrepreneurship than the U.S. Sugar Corporation, which is really saying something. In Brenner's article, Alfie Van Hool defends his political activities in the U.S. by saying, quote, We did not get involved in the Batista government, and we do not want what happened in Cuba to happen again. End quote. Of course, the problem with putting it that way is it wasn't Batista who took the Van Hool's sugar land in Cuba. Castro did. It wasn't like, oh, we didn't bribe Batista enough and he took our land. It was, no, this revolutionary who was able to feed off of popular hatred against people like the Fan Hools on the part of poor Cubans. That's what happened and resulted in him losing his sugar land. And as was indicated by the quote from Brenner's article that I read a few minutes ago, the Fan Hools did bribe the Batista regime plenty when they were still there, as every big business in Cuba had to do at the time. So, I mean, it's kind of disingenuous to say, 
oh, we're just involved in American politics because we're worried about, you know, losing our land like how we did with Castro's revolution. That's that's really disingenuous. They're involved in American politics ultimately to have artificially inflated profits. Anyway, Alfie Finn Hool quickly bought three sugar mills in Louisiana and had them move to Florida and um, brought them to one of their farms, which was called Osceola, which was 4,000 acres of land in the, in the Everglades agricultural area. It's always nice to name your farm after a violent resistor of the U.S. takeover of Florida. The Van Hool's operation grew quickly as they leased and bought all the land they could get their hands on in that area, and they expanded their facilities. But it was kind of low-key growth until they purchased Okilanta. Now, here's the deal with Okilanta. Okilanta was a subsidiary of South Puerto Rico Sugar, which was itself part of a conglomerate called Gulf and Western Industries. Gulf and Western Industries was a real Frankenstein conglomerate put together by an eccentric Austrian-born businessman named Charles Bludorn. Bludorn began with an auto parts company, and over the course of the 60s and 70s, Gulf and Western acquired an absolutely dizzying variety of companies and smooshed them together into this huge conglomerate. And among their holdings were things like Paramount Pictures, Stax Records, Sega, the video game company, um, the publisher Simon & Schuster, Madison Square Garden, and also by extension the New York Knicks and New York Rangers, and the Kaiser Roth Clothing Company, which in turn owned the Miss Universe pageant, to name just a few interesting things that were part of Gulf and Western. It also, again, owned South Puerto Rico Sugar, which owned Ogilanta. Supposedly, Bluedorn was more interested in sugar than anything else in the 70s, and supposedly when Francis Ford Coppola was making The Godfather, which would be a giant hit for Paramount, Bluedorn was actually more interested in what was going on in the sugar market than what was going on with that film. Now, Okilanta had 90,000 acres of sugarland in Florida and another 240,000 acres of sugarland in the Dominican Republic. Marie Brenner writes, quote, In 1974, a price spike drove the sugar industry into overproduction, and the bottom fell out of the market. The government rushed in with guaranteed loans and financing, which became the basis of the current sugar program. If market prices fell short, farmers could make more money if they forfeited their crops, and it suddenly became clear to the Van Hools and every other potential sugar grower that you could not lose if you converted cattle or vegetable acreage to sugarcane, end quote. And so this is the context in which the Van Hool brothers are just trying to expand and grab up every acre of potential sugar land they can. In 1983, Charles Bluedorn, this owner of Gulf and Western, who was only in his 50s at the time, died suddenly of a heart attack, and his successor as head of Gulf and Western decided within a year to sell the company's sugar holdings. By the way, they sold some other things off in the mid-80s, including Sega and Kaiser Roth clothing, and by 1989, they had converted into calling themselves 
Paramount Communications. That's that's what became the name of their um, conglomerate, and this was in turn acquired by Viacom in the 1990s. By the way, a lawyer for Golf and Western said that one reason they decided to ditch their sugar holdings was because of the exposés that were coming out in the 80s about labor conditions. It was quite a scandal. And this lawyer says that he had looked into the workers' conditions himself on their um, Florida sugar plantations and described them as being, quote, one degree short of Dachau, end quote. So even these people at Gulf and Western were kind of bothered by the um, publicity and maybe even to some degree by the actual ethics of the conditions of some of the workers at these places. So Alfie Van Hool bought Okilanta, including all of the company Sugarland in Florida and the Dominican Republic, as well as two hotels and a resort in the Dominican Republic. And he bought all this for $240 million in 1984. And with that deal, Florida Crystals, the overall company of the Van Hool Brothers sugar empire, Florida Crystals overtook U.S. Sugar Corporation in terms of its acreage of sugar land. It also made the Van Hools a major player in Dominican Republic sugar, which was really important because the Dominican Republic has had, since Castro's revolution, the largest foreign share of the U.S. sugar quota. And the Van Hools Dominican Republic operation is the largest private exporter of sugar in the Dominican Republic. So... If the foreign part of the U.S. sugar quota goes up, they make money. If it goes down, they make money. They've hedged their bets very well in that regard. As of the late 90s, the Fan Hools were importing about 100,000 tons of raw, duty-free sugar from their Dominican Republic plantation into the U.S., and at the same time, they controlled about 43% of all sugar-growing acreage in Florida as well. And at the Fan Hool's 240,000-acre plantation in the Dominican Republic, apparently the disturbing labor practices that have actually ended in Florida in the 90s, they still happen in the Dominican Republic, though things are even worse there than they ever were in Florida. And in particular, they sucker Haitians over the border to work at their plantation under conditions that are at best indentured servitude and at worst well, something worse than that. I'll link to a CBC documentary um, from not too many years ago entitled, I think, Big Sugar, Sweet, White, and Deadly, something like that, which talks a bit about the Van Hool brothers and their Dominican Republic plantation and so on. But at this plantation, the workers must cut at least a ton of cane a day in return for $2. They have to stay on the plantation and shop at the company store where prices are higher than in surrounding communities and workers are prevented from growing their own food, you know, vegetable gardens and things like that. They have to buy from the overpriced company store. This 
starts to look disturbingly like involuntary servitude in a lot of ways. And like I said, a lot of these workers in the Dominican Republic on their plantation are Haitians who basically get enticed over as refugees. And then once they get there and they get on the plantation, you know, they're in the wrong country. They don't have proper documentation. They're not supposed to be there. Basically, they're kind of like prisoners. If they decide they no longer like the conditions of the sugar plantation, they can't really leave without taking a huge risk. And there's basically kind of like, you know, private company police who are keeping them in line and all that. Again, watch the documentary if you're interested. It is some disturbing stuff. You know, I don't expect the wages of an unskilled grunt laborer in the Dominican Republic to be, you know, an American middle class salary. I think that would be ridiculous to expect that. But when you look at what these people deal with and how they're treated and so on, and the lack of freedom they often have to deal with, I mean, it's it's far beyond just like they're not paid great. And, you know, optics matter, and sometimes things can kind of look like the Hunger Games. So, not too far away from where these malnourished, impoverished, seemingly pretty unfree people are doing hard labor on the sugar plantation, not too far away at their um, luxury resort in the DR, which is called Casa de Campo, this thing comprises 7,000 acres, which includes, um, you know, golf courses, the only golf course in the Caribbean that's consistently ranked in the top 100 golf courses in the world and is often ranked in the top 50. And it has a 400 berth marina for yachts. It's got its own movie theater, tons of fancy shops and restaurants. It's got private villas that are comparable to the Hamptons in price and fanciness. And then, you know, just down the road, there's people that like barely have enough food to eat that are chopping cane for a couple bucks a day. Um, and then being ripped off at the company store. I mean, you know, at a certain point, it's kind of messed up at a certain point. It's like, you know, the hunger games plus let them eat cake era France. And whether they're in Florida or in the Dominican Republic or all around the world, they travel, they hang out, they have a good time. Um, the fan holes, they're into conspicuous consumption and all this sort of thing. And there's like just weirdness. They're, they're very just kind of unapologetic about it. And again, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it if they were amassing their wealth through honest free market sorts of operations, but they're doing it through political entrepreneurship and through subverting the market and ripping off the American consumer and taxpayer. Marie Brenner wrote in 2001, quote, In Palm Beach, Pepe, meaning Pepe Van Hool, lives in a mansion that was formerly owned by the Krupp family who had manufactured munitions for the Nazis, end quote. And also, according to Brenner, this kind of F you, let them eat cake attitude on the part of the Van Hools might go back quite a ways. Brenner writes, quote, According to the rumor mill in Havana, the Gomez Mena family, which by the way, are, I think, the family of the Fan Hools' um, maternal side. Um, the Gomez-Mena family emulated the French aristocracy and were as oblivious to the conditions in their fields as their 18th century counterparts. Of the ruling sugar families, the Lobos were thought of as the most decent, whereas the Gomez-Menas had a reputation for being ruthless. While Alfie and Pepe Fanhul attended dances at the Havana Yacht Club, Cuba's 500,000 cane cutters virtually starved six months out of the year. 
In Havana, the Museo de la Revolución, there are now special display cases showing the brutal conditions in the sugar fields, which helped bring about the fall of the Batista regime. End quote. So I'm no fan of Castro and his government either, but I think it's important to point out that this this kind of ridiculous, over-the-top, Hunger Games, let-them-eat-cake way of operating is one of the factors that fueled the rise of Castro, um, rising on the wave of popular anger and resentment against people like the Gomez Menas, the Fan Hools, etc., And it's important to point out that the economic situation in which families like that built their original sugar empires in Cuba was very far from being a free market. In fact, Cuba was one of the last places to get rid of slavery and certainly didn't institute full-on genuine free market practices after it ended slavery either. So I'm sure if you go back into their history in Cuba, you find a lot of political entrepreneurship in terms of how they built these giant sugar plantations there in the first place. A 1998 Time magazine article entitled Sweet Deal wrote this, quote, Whether they sell sugar from their holdings in the Everglades or from their mill in the Caribbean, the Fan Hools are guaranteed a U.S. price that is more than double anywhere else in the world. As might be expected, having it both ways has propelled the Fan Hools into the ranks of the richest Americans. Their wealth is counted in the hundreds of millions of dollars. End quote. As of 1998, the family controlled about a third of Florida sugar production and benefited at least $60 million per year from the federal government's sugar policies. The Fan Hools Flosun Land Corporation has also, over the years, branched out from sugar into things like banking, real estate, and resorts, including that luxury resort in the DR, Casa de Campo. By the way, in terms of banking, and this is from Wikipedia, the Fan Hool brothers were large shareholders and directors of Southeast Bank before its takeover and liquidation by the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in 1991. In addition, they are the majority shareholders and directors of FAIC Securities, which was investigated by the United States Securities and Exchange Commission for regulatory violations. They've also been in the charter school business since 2001 and have an elementary school and a high school, I believe, both in Palm Beach County. And, of course, charter schools are to public schools as, I don't know, Blackwater is to the U.S. military. It's like, it's not really private. They take taxpayer money, etc. It's sort of like the economic fascist alternative to the socialist public schools. And again, like with their sugar business, in part, they're profiting off of the government. Now, I'm sure the way the charter schools are set up, it's you know probably some kind of not-for-profit, so I don't necessarily mean that they're profiting in the direct literal sense of the word, but, you know, it's, it's another thing for them, right? It's another part of the empire, so to speak. How do they do this? Well, they do this by playing the game of political entrepreneurship very, very well. Alfie Van Hool in Marie Brenner's article lets the cat out of the bag a little bit when he says, quote, My father spent the last years of his life trying to figure out how to get to Cuba, but I knew that our future lay in understanding American politics. End quote. 
And I think that's very revealing because he doesn't say in understanding how to excel at competing in the American marketplace or anything like that. He says, no, 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 our, our success is going to depend on understanding American politics. He's basically admitting, yeah, we're playing a pretty pure political entrepreneur game here. And one of the ways the Fanhole family does this is by hedging their bets and giving a lot of money to both political parties, both the Democrats and the Republicans, something that a lot of the big banks in Wall Street also do. So, elder brother Alfonso Van Hool, Alfie, is the Democrat. He's tight with the Clintons. In fact, Alfie Van Hool called Bill Clinton to bitch about Al Gore's one cent per pound sugar tax to clean up the Everglades. And he did so while Bill Clinton was actually meeting with Monica Lewinsky to basically break up with her. This is, um, you know, the president's in the middle of breaking up with his whatever the hell you want to call her. And he stops the conversation to take a phone call from Alfie Van Hool. Like, how many other people could do that for, you know, to a president could have that effect? Supposedly, Clinton interrupted his conversation breaking up with Monica in order to talk to Alfie Van Hool for about 20 minutes. Although, contrary to the Hyacinth quote that I read at the start of the episode, Clinton was not actually in the middle of a BJ when the call came in. Supposedly, he was just talking to Monica, actually kind of ending the uh, relationship, such as it was. Although Alfie was a big supporter of Bill Clinton, and in more recent times of Hillary Clinton, he wasn't all that favorable to Al Gore because Gore was not consistently pro-Big Sugar, and he supported things like that sugar tax. So, ironically though, Florida environmentalist groups themselves had mixed feelings about Gore during the 2000 campaign, because he hadn't taken a strong and clear enough stance on the Everglades, and this may have lost him some votes to Nader. So Flo- Florida, um, you know, Gore might have just convincingly won Florida, and there had, might not have been any of the big recount uh, fiasco if he had either sucked up more to Big Sugar or had been a little bit more clear-cut and staunch in his environmentalism in regards to specifically Florida issues. You know, he could have sucked up to Big Sugar and got more money from them, or he could have been more hardcore environmentalists and gotten, you know, some votes that went to Nader. Um, who knows? Then you've got Jose Pepe Van Hool, who is the family's main Republican, and he is tight with, among many others, the Bush family. Pepe, by the way, became a U.S. citizen, um, I think relatively recently, and as far as I know, Alfie never has, and is still technically a citizen of Spain, though he is a permanent U.S. resident. So isn't this interesting that the two head brothers of this sugar family, one of them happens to be a Democrat and one of them happens to be a Republican, and each of them gives a lot of money to their party. And do you really think that the two brothers going for different parties is because they really have important ideological disagreements? Or is it that they're just hedging their bets? Come on, what are we, children? In a way, it kind of reminds me, um, a little bit different, but it reminds me of how the Rothschild family, uh, sent members to different countries in Europe. So they each had like their own, you know, franchise in England and in France, etc., in Holland. And this allowed them to have, you know, a toehold in each country. And the fan holes have done this as have the Wall Street banks in regard to the two big political parties in America. 
By the way, kind of interesting, there is an attorney named Joseph Clock, Clock spelled starting with a K, who was, and as far as I can tell, still is, I think, Flo Sun's general counsel, so that's, you know, the Fan Hool's company. And Clock has been described as being the Fan Hool's closest advisor. Uh, he's referred to a lot in Brenner's article on all this stuff. And he also, interestingly enough, represented Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris during her part in the 2000 Florida election recount fiasco. So there's just so many interesting connections when you start digging into people like this. And according to the Vanity Fair article by Brenner, he, Joseph Clock, is the one who takes credit for convincing the Fan Hools to automate and stop using the, the H2 workers in the mid-90s, which we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. The Van Hool brothers made almost $1 million in soft money donations in the 2000 election cycle to candidates for a variety of offices. As of about a decade ago, the Van Hool brothers would, on average, donate around $450,000 to various candidates, and in return they would get around $65 million worth of extra money courtesy of the federal government's sugar policies. The Van Hools have been very supportive of the political career of their fellow Cuban-American Floridian, Marco Rubio, ever since Rubio entered politics. In fact, Rubio singled out the Van Hool family for praise, for thanks, by name, in the acknowledgments in his book, American Son, that probably almost no one has read, including me. I only know about this because it was mentioned in some articles I read. There's an interesting article in, of all places, National Review that will be one of the articles I link to in the show notes that is entitled Marco Rubio's Billion Dollar Sugar Addiction by Elena Plot. And this article says, quote, He wrote in his memoir, American Son, that the crown jewel of his fundraising efforts during the 2010 race was an event headlined by the Van Hool family in the Hamptons, where Rubio and his wife joined the Van Hools over Labor Day weekend, and where Pepe introduced him to Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani would go on to enthusiastically endorse Rubio over Christ, um, meaning Charlie Crist, and Pepe Van Hool and his son each doled out the maximum contribution of $2,400 during the campaign. Before these fundraising efforts, Rubio had attacked Crist for promoting a bailout of U.S. sugar, the Van Hool's principal industry rival. In an interview with Glenn Beck on March 8, 2010, Rubio slammed Crist for ramming down the throats of taxpayers a bailout of a sugar company, end quote. So they supported him and got him into the Senate, helped get him into the Senate, and then the Fan Hools began supporting Rubio's recent presidential campaign all the way back in 2015 and continued to back him until he dropped out. Rubio miffed an audience at a relatively free market Republican event in August 2015 by loudly supporting the U.S. sugar program and saying it was important for quote-unquote food security. In response to this whole thing, um, a writer named Windsor Mann, writing for National Review, actually did a pretty good job destroying Rubio's argument with kind of free trade 101. Windsor Mann wrote, quote, Let's try to untangle this. 
If we get rid of sugar subsidies, Americans will turn their sugar farms into condominium lots and start buying sugar from foreigners, who will starve us until we surrender to ISIS. Or something like that. We have as much reason to grow our own sugar as Lithuania does to make its own cars. None. The fact is that other countries produce certain things more cheaply and efficiently than we do. That is why we trade with them. End quote. Every now and then, National Review has some sensible stuff in it. Mostly not, though. But every now and then, I'll give them credit. Very recently, in July of 2016, Pepe Fanhul, the family's Republican, um, after Rubio had dropped out and Trump had secured, basically, the Republican nomination, Pepe Fanhul helped host a big fundraiser for Donald Trump at the home of a billionaire named Wilbur Ross in the Hamptons. The event, which featured lunch with Donald Trump and Rince Priebus, cost $25,000 per person or $100,000 per couple. And later that month, Pepe Fanhul hosted another big fundraiser for the Donald in Miami. And in August of that year, last year, 2016, Alfie Fanhul held a $50,000 per plate fundraising event for Hillary Clinton in Miami Beach. So they made sure to hedge their bets and play both sides. Just like how they have sugar land in Florida and the Dominican Republic, so that no matter what happens with American sugar policy, they can make money, they hedge their bets with the two political parties. And just to wrap up my whole section on the Fan Hool brothers, um, kind of interesting. When Marie Brenner asked Alfie Fan Hool in 2001 for her article, whether or not he'd ever cut Kane personally, you know, himself... Alfie Fan Hool responded, quote, I have cut cane, and it was so brutal I couldn't last 20 minutes, he says, laughing. I had just come to Florida, and the farm manager wanted me to understand what it was. I thought I was going to have a heart attack, end quote. Now, I want to zoom in a bit more on Big Sugar's labor problems, and a lot of this is going to apply to the Fan Hools, but it also applies in various ways to other sugar companies as well. Journalist and author... Alec Wilkinson writes in his book, Big Sugar, Seasons in the Cane Fields of Florida, which was published in the 1980s, quote, The most perilous work in America is the harvest by hand of sugar cane in South Florida. It is performed by men from the West Indies who live in barracks on the sugar plantations. Their quarters are cheerless and without any privacy. The food they are served is not to their liking. They are frequently cheated by their employers, and they are constantly tormented by loneliness and anxiety over the lives of their wives and families and friends who are living without them at home. In the fields, they wear aluminum guards on their hands, their shins, and their knees, as well as heavy boots on their feet. Even so, more than one in every three of them cuts himself or is cut by someone who has lost control of his knife, or wrenches his back, or suffers an attack of some kind in the heat, or steps in a rabbit hole and turns an angle, or is bitten by fire ants, or pierces his eye or eardrum with a sharp leaf of cane while bending over and grabbing a stalk. In addition to being dangerous, cutting sugar cane is monotonous and fatiguing. It is stoop labor. The cutters perform the bulk of their task bent over at the waist. To stand upright, they frequently brace themselves with one hand on their backs and rise slowly. Because of the danger and the tedium and the peace rate, Americans have shunned work in cane. End quote. And this book, again, published in the 1980s, was originally a series of articles that Wilkinson wrote for The New Yorker. 
Marie Brenner writes in her 2001 Vanity Fair article similar things, quote, Every November for nearly 50 years, from 1944 to 1993, about 10,000 workers arrived in South Florida from the Caribbean to harvest the cane. The season lasted until March, and the work was so dangerous that one in every three missed a day of work due to an injury. Some lost fingers and eyes. End quote. Lots of stories and exposés and even government investigations and legal proceedings continued to paint a very negative picture of labor conditions and relations on Florida sugar plantations. From the 1960s through the 80s, Big Sugar's biggest PR problem was all the revelations and accusations about their labor practices. And if you'll recall from last episode, the labor for the Florida sugar plantations from World War II until the mid-90s primarily came from the so-called H-2 worker program, which brought in thousands of workers to cut sugarcane every year, mostly from Jamaica and some other Caribbean countries. The workers were paid very little, conditions were poor, and they were very tightly controlled. And over the decades, increasing accusations of just flat-out cheating of workers out of their rightful pay kept coming up. But the workers had basically no leverage to try and get any justice if, in fact, they were right that they had been ripped off and shortchanged and not paid what they were owed. And the reason that they had no real recourse for getting screwed was that they were foreigners in the U.S. under this very closely controlled program, they couldn't just leave and find another job if they were unhappy. Instead, workers who didn't work fast enough or who caused any ruckus or, I don't know, complained that they weren't paid fairly, would be labeled Code 1, which meant they had refused work and they would be quickly deported without any sort of, like, you know, due process or appeal. In the mid-1960s, Secretary of Labor... W. Willard Wirtz became concerned about the conditions of foreign migrant agricultural workers, especially in Florida and California. And after touring some Florida sugar plantations at the time, he said positive things about workers' conditions, but he also said that he thought that domestic workers should be used instead of H-2s. But it wouldn't take long for others to say that conditions were not so good on these plantations. In 1966, a study by a man named Peter Kramer of the nonprofit group Community Action Fund painted a much, much worse picture of the situation, characterized by bad living conditions, low wages, and potential abuses of various types. In particular, Kramer criticized the degree of absolute control and leverage that the companies had over the H-2 workers. Kramer's report quoted a sugar company foreman saying this of the H-2 workers, quote, They hear that the U.S. nigger has rights, and they think they've got rights too. They eat it up like slop. They don't know they ain't got no rights in this country, end quote. Kramer concluded with the following um, regarding sugar labor in his report, quote, Due to a complex of reasons, Americans are unwilling, not unable, to harvest this crop, at least under present conditions. End quote. In 1972, Cesar Chavez's United Farm Workers Union, 
the UFWU, sued the government for helping Florida sugar growers to bring in the H-2 workers. And the union argued that the sugar companies hadn't made reasonable efforts to hire domestic labor first. The Florida Sugarcane League, which included in its leadership Alfie Van Hool as well as William Pauley, used its political clout to fight back against the UFWU. The Florida Department of Commerce sided with the companies and with the league, and ultimately so too did the courts. After this, Cesar Chavez called for investigations into all of this by the Congress. A New York Times reporter named Philip Shabakov tried to talk to laborers themselves, but found it very difficult, in part because the workers were scared to talk, and in part because it was hard to physically get access to them, since they were basically stuck on the sugar plantations. But Shabakov did manage to talk to some of them, and was able to document some terrible conditions and company policies that were basically designed to screw workers out of as much of their pay, which wasn't great to begin with, as they possibly could. Shabakov called conditions on the plantations, quote, tangibly prison-like, end quote. A U.S. Department of Labor investigation in the 70s also reported various violations. Marie Brenner writes of this quote, In 1973, Solomon Sugarman, I'm not kidding, by the way, this guy who's investigating conditions in the sugar fields, his last name is Sugarman. Um, anyway, in 1973, Solomon Sugarman, then a Department of Labor wage and hour analyst, led a team investigating work conditions in the fields. He discovered, quote, a pattern of flagrant labor violations, end quote. Sugarman visited four growers and reported that at U.S. Sugar and Sugarcane Growers Cooperative, the cutters were often counted as having started work 30 minutes later than their actual arrival time in the fields. Similarly, there were examples of cutters quitting at 3.35 p.m. but being marked as having stopped cutting at 3. He discovered that at one company, three ticket writers were in fact asleep on the buses that carried workers to the fields. They knew the buses would change the tickets anyway, Sugarman tells me. Sugarman, like Tuddenham, who we'll mention in a minute, who was a lawyer working for some of these uh, sugar workers who claimed they had been screwed, Sugarman quickly learned what happens when you take on big sugar. The Department of Agriculture, traditionally friendly to the sugar companies, soon issued its own report exonerating big sugar, end quote, from Brenner. In the late 70s, Ray Marshall, who was Secretary of Labor under Carter, tried to get some more enforceable pay standards for sugarcane workers put in place, and the sugar companies figured out a way to just work around this. According to Marie Brenner, the way they did this was by instituting very complex and subjective pricing, because workers would typically be paid by the row, but what the sugarcane executives and the actual foremen and managers in the field, what they would do is say, well, you know, not every row of cane is equal. Some are a little bit tougher or easier to do for whatever reason. And so our guys um, on the ground need to be able to just subjectively say, oh, this one will pay you this many dollars. And the next one, oh, we'll pay you a different amount of dollars. Right. So that's their way of getting around kind of simple, transparent, um, standards of pay. In 1981, a group of Haitian refugees who were living in Florida sued the sugar companies, 
arguing that the companies wouldn't hire them because since they were now residents and weren't liable to be deported at the drop of a hat, these Haitians, you know, they could potentially leave and find work elsewhere if they were treated badly or not paid fairly. So, in other words, the argument was that the companies were discriminating against domestic workers who were willing to do the hard work in the cane fields, but who might not be in such a vulnerable position that the companies could exploit and potentially cheat them to the degree that they commonly, by all you know, allegations, did with H-2 workers. In the 80s, however, the labor problems in Florida sugar got even wider public exposure, in particular with something that happened on November 22nd, 1986, which got known in the media as the Dog War. This is something which took place at the Okilanta plantation owned by the Fan Hools by that time. What happened was, Workers there were claiming they hadn't been paid properly um, for the work that they had done, and they refused to work for the pay that was being offered to them um, for that day. And the two sides, the workers and the the overseers, couldn't agree. So what happened was Palm Beach County cops came in with riot gear and attack dogs, and some people were bitten. And ultimately, almost 400 people were deported, many of whom, by the way, had nothing to do with the pay dispute whatsoever. And the workers who were deported were not even allowed to gather up their personal possessions from the barracks before they were shipped off. Many of them had um, previously worked the apple harvest up north and had used some of that money to buy some personal things that they were going to bring home for themselves and their families at the end of the sugar season. And that was just left behind and they were just deported. So the media coverage of this was just an absolute PR disaster for the sugar barons in general, and the Fan Hools in particular. In 1986, the U.S. government offered migrant agricultural workers green cards if they had worked at least 90 days in the U.S. already. And those who got these green cards could seek work outside of their original employment in the U.S. And this would, of course give them a little bit of leverage. It would give them some ability to walk away from jobs where they felt they were being mistreated or, you know, somehow cheated, not paid correctly, etc. Big Sugar went to work immediately to get themselves an exemption from that program for their workers. Why? Well, it's pretty easy to guess why, because they knew if the, if sugar workers had that opportunity to get those green cards and thus have the liberty to walk off of a job that is treating them like garbage, that they'd have a hard time having enough laborers. And sure enough, by 1988, after two years of this program, Big Sugar had gotten themselves a special exemption. Sugar workers who had managed to get their green cards in that two-year window and thus had the ability to kind of choose their own employment in the U.S. a bit more became an important source of info about Big Sugar's labor practices because once they had their green cards, they could work elsewhere, and many did. Al French, then at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, had previously worked at Florida Farm Bureau. His father was Allison French, whom you might remember from last episode, had helped set up the foreign workers program in the first place. In the 1960s, he'd worked at an agricultural consulting firm called the Management Research Institute, which was run by Raphael Van Hool, the uncle of Alfie and Pepe. 
So again, you've got this revolving door regulatory capture situation at play all the time. Things kept coming out, though, exposing to the public a lot of the dark side of the Sugar Baron's labor practices. So, for example, in 1989, documentary filmmaker Stephanie Black made a film entitled H2 Workers, which showed that the things exposed by the New York Times reporter Shabakov years ago were still going on. And it also specifically exposed time card fraud being perpetrated by the company in order to shortchange their workers. Also in 1989, writer Alec Wilkinson, whose book I quoted from earlier, published the book. Again, the book was Big Sugar, Seasons in the Cane Fields of Florida, which covered a lot of the same stuff as well. In 1990, ABC, the television network, put out a documentary based in part on Wilkinson's book, and that documentary was entitled Bittersweet Harvest. The government responded to all this attention with some hearings in 1991 looking into Big Sugar's labor practices, at which an economist named Marshall Berry said the following, quote, Why should an industry like sugar get 10,000 Jamaicans to farm the Everglades with the ecological damage when we pay more for sugar and there are no workers that are willing to do work to do the work because it's so terrible? What's the advantage to taxpayers and consumers? We're trying to get these Latin American countries to pay us the foreign debt that they owe us, and we're taking one of their big cash crop markets from them because they all grow sugarcane, end quote. So, yeah, making several good points um, of many more you could make against the U.S. sugar policy and big sugars practices. Also in 1991, the Congress determined that the U.S. Department of Labor had failed to do its job in regard to the cane workers and that, among other things, the workers' hours had frequently been falsified. The case of the Okilanta plantation was especially bad, and overall, in general, in this um, report, the plantations of the Fanhul family were determined to be the worst offenders in terms of labor practices and you know cheating workers and that sort of thing. Al French, I guess technically Allison French Jr., that son of the man who'd originally implemented the H-2 program starting back in the 40s, Al French Jr., in the in the family business, I guess, who'd um, previously been on the Fan Hools payroll, revolving door, came to the defense of the Fan Hools in these hearings and blamed it on sloppy bookkeeping. So, you know, it's just a few bad apples who made some mistakes in keeping records, that sort of thing. There's not a concerted effort to try to shaft the workers in order to keep costs down. A 1992 report by the General Accounting Office, or GAO, also condemned the sugar company's practices and criticized them, among other things, for improper payroll deductions. They also found that workers who pushed back against the company in any way, or who even tried to switch to work for another sugar company that they thought might treat them better, would immediately be deported and would have some wages that they'd already earned withheld from them, and they would also be blacklisted and would be unable to find new employment with any of the other companies who used H-2 workers. In 1992, U.S. Sugar Corporation began trying to repair its PR image by having a campaign of public relations to kind of showcase that they were implementing better conditions for their workers. USSC has always been more concerned with their image in the modern era than the fan hole companies have been. 
And in general, starting in the early 90s with all this bad publicity, most sugar companies began looking for ways to kind of wean themselves off of the H2 program before public outrage caused them even bigger problems and maybe provided enough political push to end the U.S. sugar protectionist policies altogether. The Flosun sugar plantations, which again, that's the fan holes, were fully mechanized by 1993 and other sugar growers quickly followed suit. Basically, what had happened was technology had gotten to the point where they could use mechanized methods to harvest the sugar, which previously they hadn't been able to because of the muck soils. Well, now they had figured out how to do it. And that combined with all the bad publicity over the way the workers are being treated meant that they decided, yeah, let's just get rid of it. So by the 1994-95 harvest season, only 1,500 foreign workers worked in the Florida cane fields, and all of those were just for U.S. Sugar Corporation, which also during that season paid them better than they had previously. And by the next year, mechanization had even fully taken place on USSC's lands, and they even stopped bringing in foreign workers altogether. So basically, you could say 94-95, the H-2 program um, for sugar ceases to exist, and it's been mechanized since then. And I want to mention briefly something that's one of the main focuses of the article by Marie Brenner in The Kingdom of Big Sugar, which again, if you want to read the whole thing and and get all the details of this besides just my overview, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But there was an important case which ended up culminating in what was called Bygrave versus Okilanta, which was a case brought by Edward Tuddenham, who's a lawyer who kind of works for impoverished farm workers who have claims that they're being screwed over or what have you. And this case brought by Edward Tuddenham on behalf of sugarcane workers was centering around the claim that they had been cheated out of wages. And the case was brought in 1989 and unfolded over more than a decade. And the cane cutters sought damages of over $50 million for what they claimed were, you know, wages that they justifiably had been owed but had not been paid over the years. So thousands and thousands of cane workers over many years. Marie Brenner writes in her 2001 Vanity Fair article, quote, Under a formula that was supposed to comply with minimum wage standards, the workers were paid not by the hour, but by the task or the amount they cut on a row. Each day, the price was determined by the foreman, who insisted that pricing the rows was highly subjective, and that it depended on how thick the cane was, how wet the ground was, and how the cane grew in the field. Jamaicans swore that their hours were routinely shorted by the ticket writers who reported to the field bosses. Sometimes, they alleged in depositions, they were paid for only four hours when they had worked the entire day. Often the Jamaicans cut 10 or more tons of cane a day. The row price should have been set high enough so that everyone would make the minimum wage, says Tuddenham, again, the lawyer representing the cane workers, but thousands were paid as little as $25 per day, about half the minimum wage. However, whatever they made, it was much more than they could make at home. At the end of the season, a cane cutter could, and we're, we're back in... Uh, Brenner's words, just the one sentence was from Tuddenham. However, whatever they made, it was much more than they could make at home. At the end of the season, a cane cutter could take back enough money to buy cinder blocks for a house. From all over Jamaica, men flocked to Kingston every year, hoping to pass the physical exams that would permit them to go to Florida and work for Big Sugar, end quote from Brenner. Now, this, you know, exposes the fact that, look, 
to these impoverished people from Jamaica and a few other places in the Caribbean, this was an opportunity for many of them to make better money than they could laboring at home. That's why they would volunteer for the program in the first place. So, you know, to me, and, and even Brenner kind of admits this and others writing on this question as well, it's less to do with, you know, should these people be being paid lavishly? Um, most people, I think, would, unless they're just kind of, you know, some sort of utopian socialist, would say, well, the, these workers are probably going to be willing to work for relatively little to do this job. And from their perspective, what they're being offered might actually be good money. But were they paid properly, fairly, or were their employers somehow cheating them out of what they really should have earned based on how much they worked? I mean, it's true. These workers are not being paid well by American standards, and it's a tough job, no question about that. But they did see the job as an opportunity to better themselves. That's why they volunteered for it. They weren't being shanghaied out of their their homes to come do this work. They were volunteering for it. And like Brenner said, they would, you know, come from all over Jamaica um, to Kingston just to try to hopefully get a spot. But then they would often get there and find figure out that they were being screwed over. Um, and so it's th- it's this really tricky situation. So the real problem, the real issue, as I see it from my perspective, wasn't so much whether these workers were paid highly or, in, in my eyes at least, whether they were even paid the minimum wage all the time because they were being paid by piecework, not by, by hours usually. But the thing to me is whether or not they were cheated out of pay that they really should have gotten if things were being done in an honest and fair way. Basically, it looks to me like their employers were taking advantage of the fact that these guys had like no um, legal rights in the U.S. and could be deported at the drop of a hat to basically um, cut corners on, on paying them, knowing that they really didn't have much chance of getting any fair hearing or recourse from the system. When confronted by Marie Brenner with testimony by workers who said they'd been shorted um, on their pay and had been unjustifiably given a so-called Code 1 and deported simply for raising an issue that they hadn't been paid correctly, Alfie Fanhul replied, quote, I am convinced we didn't do anything wrong. My conscience is totally clean, end quote. And Jorge Dominici's, who works for him, said, quote, All of these workers have been coached. End quote. And the lawyer, Joseph Clock's response to this was, quote, Is it possible that some people were accidentally shorted? Yes, it's wrong. Did we say that we were going to pay them by the ton and then cheat them? No. End quote. In 1992, a Florida judge, and I think it was even a Republican judge, uh, sided with the cane cutters and awarded them their money, but then the case got appealed and was overturned on appeal and ended up ultimately being broken into five separate cases against different sugar companies. And in 1998, U.S. Sugar reached a settlement with their former cane workers and paid them $5.1 million. Again, U.S. Sugar had been more concerned about media coverage and PR than the fanholes, and the fanholes mostly continued to have kind of a fuck you attitude towards the media, the public, their workers, kind of everybody. And as a result, the case against the Fanhul's Okilanta company continued for several more years. Now, a key fact to keep in mind with this case, and this is a quote from Marie Brenner, quote, 
The Fanhul's fields were run by farm managers, whose job it was to meet a budget set at the beginning of the season, end quote. And as Branner and others have pointed out, somehow the Fanhul's managers and, you know, overseers and ticket writers always seem to get things right on budget. They never ran a little bit over. And this is supposedly one of the secrets to why the fan holes have done so well is somehow they're always able to hit their budget uh, projections, right? Now, think about this. You've got this system where you've got these countless rows of sugarcane, and in terms of assigning a price to each one as you get workers to, to harvest them, you're um, overseers are making these very subjective technical things, you know, taking into account all these different factors on each row of exactly how much they'll pay a worker to harvest it. And wouldn't you know it somehow they magically, after doing, you know, countless thousands of acres of cane harvesting, they magically always end up paying what they had budgeted for it in the first place, right? Seems to me like what seems to be going on is they're basically using this murky subjective pricing system in order to just figure out one way or another to to hit their target uh, budget on the workers. And if that means workers got to be screwed a bit, then so be it. You know, they're H2 workers. They're not going to have, unless someone like Tuddenham comes along and wants to represent them, they're typically not going to have much in the way of recourse to the legal system to try and get get things fixed if they have, in fact, been cheated. So there's a dispute about shortchanging, but also, as Brenner um, chronicles in the article, about the nature of the contract or agreement between the company and the worker, which is also complicated by the fact that the U.S. government, who's overseeing the H-2 program, is acting as sort of a third party to the contract. So Brenner writes, quote, before leaving Jamaica, the H-2 workers were handed a one-page contract which said they would be paid by the task system. In order to obtain a temporary visa for a worker, the sugar companies were required to file a document called a clearance order with the Department of Labor. No worker ever saw the clearance order, but it contained a concise description of the job. A worker would be expected to cut an average of eight tons of harvest cane per day throughout the season, end quote. And this was... Um, it turned into the heart of the dispute in this suit, in part because that's how the, the judges kind of steered it and what the, um, the defense attorneys, you know, working for the Van Hools were able to steer it towards this kind of technical issue. The exact nature of what it was the workers were contracting to do and how they were contracting to be compensated. Brenner writes, quote, can the language of expectation, eight tons in eight hours, be interpreted as a worker's right to receive 530, which was the minimum, which was the hourly minimum wage per ton? Eight tons is an immense amount of sugarcane, 16,000 pounds of stalks that are 10 to 15 feet high. By comparison, harvesters at the Fanhul sugar farms in the Dominican Republic were paid about a buck fifty per ton and cut two or three tons per day. Sometimes the workers in America would cut close to two tons of cane an hour, end quote. The sugar companies say workers were paid more when they were more productive like that, but workers claim that they were often shorted one way or another. Brenner writes, quote, Edward Lazier, a Stanford economist who is considered a leading authority on pay systems, analyzed the records of scores of crews employed by the Fanhul companies. In many cases, whole crews were recorded as having worked only four-hour days. It was almost as if they were on strike. 
Lazier, who is an expert witness for Tuddenham, is so convinced by the evidence in the case that he has stopped taking money for his services. Joseph Clock says, They say that the expert's game is a whore's game. You can probably get one to say anything. Back to Brenner, Tuddenham has calculated that the workers were in fact paid an average of only about $3.70 a ton, and is adamant that the growers' budgets were designed to meet only that amount. That doesn't mean every worker every day, but over eight years with 20,000 workers, the original lost wages claim in the case was about $100 million, end quote. David Gorman, who was working with Tuddenham on the case, put forth the argument that you could prove that the sugar companies weren't living up to the terms of the so-called clearance order, but then the courts would have to decide whether the clearance order should be considered a legally binding contract. For a long time, Tuddenham found it basically impossible to get testimony from ticket writers, the guys who were actually in charge of the nuts and bolts of recording worker you know, hours and, and paying them and making those decisions. And the reason that they couldn't get ticket writers to testify was because many during the early years of this case still worked for the sugar companies. But then after mechanization came in in the early to mid 90s, these ticket writers were no longer employed by the sugar companies and suddenly they began to talk. So some former ticket writers, you know, supervisors, overseers began to tell Tuddenham that it was a common standard operating procedure to get more tons harvested than what they actually paid for. People working on behalf of cane workers thought that they would get a better hearing from the executive branch once Bill Clinton was elected in 92 than they had in the 80s under Reagan and Bush. But they soon found out that wasn't the case, as, you know, as we know, Clinton was very favorably disposed towards Big Sugar and especially Alfie Van Hool, who helped him raise a lot of money. Basically, from what I see putting it all together from Brenner's article and some other things um, in other books like Raising Cain in the Glades, again, what it looks like to me, and I don't, you know, claim to know all the details for certain, but what it really looks like to me putting it all together was that the managers and ticket writers were given a budget for the harvest, and in their effort to hit that, they were ultimately kind of manipulating workers' pay to their advantage when necessary. So as Brenner writes, quote, it seemed that the workers were being paid by the ton because the company budgeted each field by the ton. Each year, Atlantic and Okilanta hit their budget estimates no matter what. One witness after another testified that their hours had been cut by ticket writers in order to make their hourly wages appear higher, end quote. Of course, lawyers from the fanholes also provided testimony from managers and ticket writers who adamantly denied this. Ultimately, the case ended up really coming down to the nature of the contract and whether the clearance order actually should be considered a contract. And a lawyer for the plaintiffs, for the cane workers, put it this way, quote, Did they intend to pay five thirty a ton? No, they had budgeted $4 a ton. We knew that. On the other side, you have the cutters. Did they intend to get or expect to get $5.30 a ton? No. They did not know that the document that required it existed. If you said to these guys, come to the United States and we will pay you $3 an hour, they would have said, fine, for $2 an hour, they would be there, end quote. So again, even the people working for the cane cutters admit that a lot of this money was fairly good from their perspective. But again, the question comes down to, is are the sugar companies acting in an honest 
sort of way in terms of paying these people, um, what should be fair based on the amount of work they actually did. Now, the jury foreman in this case, who was the owner of a title company and thus probably better than the other jurors, understood the details of the case better, um, you know, in terms of all these details of compensation and contract and whatever. The jury foreman said that when he asked the jurors inside the jury room whether the company had, in fact, cheated the workers, the juror said yes. And as far as I know, I think he said that they all said yes. But the problem was that the judge wasn't asking them to rule on that question, whether the companies had just kind of in general cheated the workers, but rather the question of the company's intent and the fine details of the contract and whether the clearance order should be considered in some way a contract. So it's kind of interesting that the jurors basically, um, after looking at all the things they were presented with, had the opinion that, oh, yeah, the, the workers have been screwed over here. But the, then the judge is instructing them, like, no, you're not ruling on that question generally. You're kind of ruling on this one technical issue. The jury foreman also said, quote, It was clear that the incentive system was a moving benchmark. I don't use the word fraud, but there was no level playing field for the workers. End quote. When the jurors came in to deliver the verdict, the foreman asked the judge to read a statement which basically said to the effect that the sugar companies had been dishonest in representing the task system and the pay system to the workers, but that the ruling was basically coming down to whether or not the company was required by the contract to pay at least five thirty per ton. And ultimately, they ruled no on that. I'll link to the Vanity Fair article by Brenner in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. The case is, as these sorts of things always are, very complex. I don't claim to quite understand all the technical details, and I also don't claim to know, you know, for certain all the facts. I'm just putting together my perception based on all the things that I'm seeing. And I think when you read it and you combine it with all the other negative things that have come out about the labor practices of big sugar in general, and especially the fan holes in particular, there's pretty clearly a pattern. You know, there's got to be some some fire with that much smoke. There's got to be more than a little there there. And again, putting it all together seems to me based on all these things I've looked at that basically what's happening is the managers, the ticket punchers who work for the fan holes, they're told before the harvest how much they have as a budget to pay the workers in order to harvest a given amount of cane. And then it's basically up to these guys to do whatever fuzzy math might be required in terms of juking the time cards and arbitrarily pricing, you know, rows of cane differently in order to make sure that everything comes in at budget, even if that means the workers are actually being shorted in one fashion or another. Officially, of course, the Fan Hools and their lawyers always claimed that if this did happen on occasion, it was due to accounting errors or, you know, incompetence at the overseer level or whatever. But my suspicion is that there's a policy of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, encouraging these, you know, low-level managers and overseers to do this sort of thing, or else they'd be replaced with someone else who would. And in fact, this is corroborated by at least one former ticket writer who testified in this case, quote, the men were complaining that I was robbing them of hours and that all of the ticket writers were robbing them of hours. I told them that's what we had to do and that we did not have any choice. The company definitely knew that the hours were being cut, end quote. 
the low-level overseers were basically from the ranks of the cane cutters. And, you know, they got paid a little better and didn't have to do as brutal of labor. And so they had to kind of go along with what the company wanted them to do, or they would be sent back to, you know, hacking with a machete all day instead. In a way, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, and obviously um, this analogy is, is something that's a bit worse than than what's going on in the Florida sugar cane fields up through the early 90s. But in some ways, this kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge from on high to kind of encourage people to break the rules, and then, you know, when it starts to get exposed, they're like, oh, no, we didn't want them to do that. In some ways, it's similar to the situation when you have soldiers committing war crimes and atrocities with kind of knowing but subtle encouragement from on high. And when it comes to light, the low-level guys get thrown under the bus and they take all the blame. And the generals who actually kind of encourage this sort of thing, suddenly they act all surprised and blame it on a few bad apples at the lower levels. It's kind of that sort of a deal. Again, I can't say 100% for sure, but putting it all together, that seems to me to be the most likely explanation of what went on, specifically in regard to all the allegations of workers being shortchanged and the documentation of their labor being falsified. And of course, because these were foreign H-2 workers, without most of the rights that even the poorest American citizens are supposed to have, and because they could be deported at the drop of a hat for kind of almost any reason, and they were mostly barred from leaving the sugar fields to seek out employment elsewhere, the sugar companies were able to really squeeze them and get away with it in ways they couldn't with uh, workers who were not H-2s. But be that as it may, after 40 years in operation, the H-2 program for sugar labor ended in 95, and um, again partly because mechanization had finally gotten to the point where it could do this, and in part because of all this bad publicity coming out. And another reason that I haven't mentioned yet that they stopped the H-2 program was fear of AIDS, which was big in the early 90s. And AIDS was rampant in the sugar-growing towns of the EAA where the H-2 laborers were. In fact, in the mid-90s, Bell Glade, which is one of the, one of the towns in that area, had the highest per capita AIDS rate in the entire U.S., and as a youngster growing up in South Florida, I can remember hearing about this in Belle Glade and other sugar towns, you know, being kind of like third world countries and having sky high AIDS rates. Gail Hollander in Raising Cane in the Glades raises some interesting thoughts about why sugarcane labor was the way it was and about how Florida sugarcane might potentially have evolved differently without the H2 program as it actually existed historically. Hollander writes, quote, the counterfactual question, what would have happened had offshore workers not been available, is unanswerable. We can imagine a different agricultural labor market in which domestic workers received appropriate wages for such demanding and arduous labor. This, in turn, might have bolstered the agricultural labor market more broadly, since South Florida provides counter-seasonal employment at the national scale. Conversely, we can speculate that technological improvements would have occurred sooner had this agro-industry been limited to the domestic labor supply. History proves that the physical impediments to mechanization in Florida were not insurmountable. In the final analysis, the availability of domestic labor for cutting cane was not simply an economic question, but a social and political one as well. We can surmise from reading the historical record that no white person ever cut cane professionally in Florida, and that probably no one other than black workers ever did. 
Cane cutting was a racially inscribed job category and as such became associated with racist employment relations rooted in the political structure of the Jim Crow South that were repugnant to domestic workers. South Florida was not unique in its racism, but the racialized and gendered structure of the sugar plantation labor force was distinctive. Central to this structure were questions about who could and should cut cane and why, which was answered in the context of the intersection of the plantation system, corporate paternalism, U.S. agrarian and race relations, and Caribbean labor, end quote. And I'll just quote, close out my um, commentary on the labor issues of Big Sugar by uh, mentioning that after the last episode, which was part one of the rise of the Cane Kingdom, a listener emailed me with a good question. He wanted to ask about something I kind of said in passing in that episode without really fleshing out, which was that left to their own devices, market forces would tend to pull wages up for difficult and dangerous jobs. And um, he wasn't familiar with that concept, so I kind of explained it a bit. So um, this is my response back to that listener. Great question. I guess I kind of glossed over the concept in the episode without elaborate, elaborating on it much. What I was glossing over was a concept in labor economics known as the three Ds, which usually is taken to mean dirty, dangerous, and demanding, or dirty, dangerous, and difficult. Jobs in this category tend to be well-paid relative to their skill requirements. Obviously, having a scarce but highly desired skill is going to be a more important factor than anything in raising a worker's compensation. But if you compare a 3Ds job to another job that has equivalent skill requirements, but that's not 3Ds, the 3Ds job will, although the variables being equal and the market being free, tend to be paid better than the non-3Ds jobs of comparable skill requirements. The reason for this is that if a worker has a fair amount of potential other options, he will probably not be interested in a 3Ds job unless it offers him enough higher compensation to entice him away from his potential other non-3D jobs. Um, and then I, I mentioned that Wikipedia actually has a pretty good page about this concept, and I linked to it in my email to the listener and also linked to it in the show notes for this episode. And I pasted into the email what I think is the key part of the Wikipedia page in summing up what I was getting at in Rise of the Cane Kingdom Part 1 when I mentioned this stuff. So, quote from the Wikipedia article. Traditionally, workers in 3D professions are well-paid due to the undesirability of the work and the resulting need to pay higher wages to attract workers. This has allowed the uneducated and unskilled to earn a living wage by foregoing comfort, personal safety, and social status. This concept proves itself in the economic theory of quantity supplied and quantity demanded. The wages paid to these workers is higher due to the undesirable nature of the professions. However, in regions where certain classes of workers are restricted to this type of work, or there are contributing regional conditions, for example, high unemployment adjacent to regions with high poverty, or the recipient of driven labor migration— there will be workers willing to accept lower than equilibrium wages, and then these jobs are not well paid, end quote. Again, continuing with my email. So to apply this to the sugar workers, in the 1920s and 30s, African-American migrant agricultural laborers in the South provided the outcast group who could be used to fill the sugarcane jobs without the companies having to compensate them decently because of state policies and social prejudices that severely limited the potential other opportunities for them. Also, the specific circumstances in the 30s of the Depression only made this worse. 
However, in the 40s and 50s, World War II and post-war prosperity meant that even African Americans, though they still faced both legal and informal discrimination, nonetheless had better opportunities to have better wages and conditions elsewhere. This, of course, was a time when large numbers of them moved north to work in factories. Also, by this time, the stories of really bad treatment by sugar companies had gotten out so that even the African-Americans who remained poor agricultural laborers in the South simply wouldn't work for the sugar companies anymore anyway. This, of course, was when the sugar companies worked with the government to develop what eventually became known as the H-2 program, which provided them with workers whose opportunities were far more restricted even than African-Americans. And... Uh, quoting myself from that email. So again, I'll link to the Wikipedia article on the 3D's concept in labor economics, which is, does a pretty good job summary, summarizing the overall concept. By the way, we saw this even in the case of the H-2 workers. Once they had that opportunity to get green cards and thus be able to seek employment elsewhere, a lot of them did. So that, again, kind of verifies what's happening, which is when workers have other options, the only way to get them to do 3D's jobs is to offer them a little bit better pay than otherwise. Whereas if they don't have other options, you can get them to do 3D's jobs for crabby pay because they don't have other options. Now I want to talk a little bit more about big sugar in the environment in the mid to late 20th century. Because once mechanization removed a lot of the bad publicity about big sugar's labor practices, the next big PR problem for Big Sugar was the increasingly obvious environmental damage that they had inflicted and were continuing to inflict on a large piece of Florida's ecosystem. Now, some of this is going to overlap with some things I covered a few episodes back in Draining the Swamp, but it's an overlapping story, which is why I kind of did these episodes, um, you know, close together in time. And I'll try not to rehash too much of what I've already said, but there will be a little bit of overlap. Michael Grunwald, in his book, The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise, on some of the issues that the rise of the Cane Kingdom had caused for South Florida's ecosystem, writes, quote, The Everglades agricultural area was in the middle of the Everglades. Lake Okeechobee had once spilled onto the sawgrass, but now cane fields blocked its path like a giant clot, choking off the original sheet flow. Drainage of the EAA had also lowered the region's water table and depleted its soils, while Big Sugar's water demands exacerbated droughts and threw off the ecosystem's natural rhythms. Growers wanted their land dry when Mother Nature wanted it wet, and vice versa." End quote. And there was something else that was also causing significant damage to the Everglades as well that was becoming increasingly obvious by about the 70s. Because in the 70s, experts were starting to really become aware of the fact that there was a nutrient problem happening in the Everglades and also in Lake Okeechobee. By the 70s, Lake Okeechobee was really in a bad condition ecologically, and a big part of this was the practice of back pumping, in which sugar growers, and other farmers as well, but I think sugar growers tended to be the, the biggest offenders in this regard, that they would back pump used, quote-unquote, agricultural water from the EAA back up into the lake, which would not only mess up the lake, but also meant that these things would uh, potentially filter their way down through the kind of Everglades proper and affect the whole region. And when in 1979 sugar growers were finally told that they had to stop back pumping their agricultural runoff water into the lake, they simply started pumping it southward towards the Everglades instead, directly. 
And the big problem here, more than anything else, was phosphorus. I mean, there were other things in the water that were problematic, but phosphorus was a big deal. Because in its natural state, the Everglades water system was extremely low on phosphorus. And when you start adding big amounts to it, it throws everything off. So... Michael Grunwald writes, quote, Something in the water of the Everglades was changing the river of grass into a sea of cattails, crowding out the native sawgrass, unhinging the food web, making the marsh smell like rotten eggs. End quote. Now, in response to accusations that their phosphorus was messing up the Everglades, sugar growers responded by saying that this wasn't a pollutant. It was a natural, non-toxic chemical, and in fact, the water containing phosphorus was clear and could be drunk. But a top scientist who was working on the Everglades and what was going wrong with its water determined that the most phosphorus that the glades could stand without undergoing environmental damage was 10 parts per billion, which is quite low. And that the water that the sugar growers were routinely pumping into the system was at least 20 times higher than that in phosphorus content. Grunwald writes that this scientist, whose name was Ronald Jones, described the damage that this phosphorus caused as follows, quote, He proved that when infinitesimal amounts of phosphorus were added to the Everglades, soils became saturated, periphyton mats disintegrated, spinach-like algae proliferated, and dissolved oxygen was sucked out of the marsh. The diversity of invertebrates and tiny fish plummeted, and sawgrass grew abnormally tall. Eventually, the sawgrass marshes were displaced by cattails, so thick that fish and birds couldn't swim or land in them, much less feed in them. The science also proved that the nutrient front of phosphorus-saturated soils directly followed the path of sugar runoff from the Everglades agricultural area. The front was advancing, like the blob, spreading about five new acres of cattails a day. And once phosphorus became entrenched in the soil, it was almost impossible to get out, end quote. And Grunwald quotes Jones himself as saying, quote, cattails were the grave markers on the Everglades, end quote. Furthermore, the sugar growers used up so much water that the Everglades National Park often suffered from severe water shortages that were entirely or at least mostly man-made. Or at the very least, you know, natural droughts that were made much, much worse by the sugar growers in the EAA. According to Michael Grunwald, the sugar industry received about half of the water that was released by the CNSF and paid less than 1% of the taxes to fund the CNSF. Again, you should listen to the Draining the Swamp episode if you've not already, because I'm not going to like define every term and everything as I go. But in 1981, the South Florida Water Management District was pressured by environmentalists into actually making water quality one of its goals. Believe it or not, before 1981, this organization that was basically running all of the water control systems south from Lake Okeechobee southward had not considered water quality one of its concerns, one of its significant concerns. And things continued to escalate in terms of pushing back against Big Sugar's practices in regard to water that went into the Everglades, when in October of 1988, the acting U.S. attorney for South Florida, a guy named Dexter Leighton, filed a lawsuit against the state of Florida and the South Florida Water Management District. And he did so without the usual 30 days notice or notification of his superiors before doing this. 
Now, Gail Hollander seems to think that Leighton did it and did it the way he did and timed it the way he did, largely for partisan political reasons, because Leighton was a Republican, and of course, 88 is an election year, and supposedly Leighton wanted to help the current vice president and Republican presidential candidate, who was, of course, George H.W. Bush, who at that time was in some of his PR trying to appear, quote unquote, green, and was questioning the environmental record of Democratic candidate Michael Dukakis. Now, Leighton's lawsuit centered on accusations that the state of Florida and the South Florida Water Management District had failed to enforce existing laws and regulations, and had allowed Big Sugar to pollute the Everglades. Now, the suit did not name the Army Corps of Engineers or any other federal government agency as defendants, because Leighton was a federal prosecutor, and as such, he couldn't sue the federal government without authorization from on high. This is what is known as sovereign immunity. So the feds can sue, you know, a part of the state government, but they can't sue themselves without giving themselves permission to sue themselves. It's kind of silly. Now, Michael Grunwald has a little bit different take on Dexter Leighton and his suit, and I think Grunwald has done um, more research. So anyway, the backstory on Leighton, he's an extremely interesting guy. He was born and raised in South Florida, and grew up near Homestead on the edge of the Everglades. He was an army paratrooper in Vietnam, and in 1971, during the invasion of Laos, he was very badly wounded. Grunwald writes, quote, He lost a chunk of his face to shrapnel, then spent the next 18 months in a hospital bed, while doctors reconstructed his jaw with bone from his hip. He lost his sight in one eye, and the left side of his face is still sunken and inert, end quote. After his military service, Leighton got two master's degrees from Columbia University and then graduated first in his class from Stanford Law School and worked as a federal prosecutor in South Florida and was also for a while elected to the Florida legislature. He started off his political career as a fairly conservative law and order Democrat, but then changed to a Republican when he married his second wife, who is a lady who I believe is still in the Congress, named Ileana Ross, who since then has been known as Ileana Ross Leighton. Dexter Leighton had always been a big law and order type guy, and he was, among other things, a big supporter of the war on drugs. And it seems, based on Grunwald's depiction, that Leighton's desire to sue the state of Florida and the South Florida Water Management District to get them to enforce water standards had more to do with his perception of people should enforce and obey the law. So Grunwald writes, quote, Leighton was enraged by the pollution of the Everglades, and he decided to try to write a law to stop it. This is when he was in the legislature. Continuing. But after researching the issue, he decided that Florida already had strict water quality laws. They just weren't being enforced, end quote. Hence his lawsuit to try and get them to obey the laws. So what had happened was in 1988, Ronald Reagan had appointed Leighton as the top federal prosecutor for South Florida. And um, I think he never really was confirmed. So that's why I referred to him earlier as acting. According to Michael Grunwald, on his first day on that job, Leighton said to an assistant that he wanted to do something to help the Everglades, and he began to have secret meetings with outdoorsmen from the area as well as environmentalists and people from the Everglades National Park as well. 
Grunwald's description of the timing of the suit and how it was done has some overlap with Hollander's, but it's also a little bit different. Grunwald writes, quote, Leighton knew his bosses in the Reagan administration would never approve legal action against Florida and Governor Bob Martinez, a Republican whose Commerce Secretary was Vice President George H.W. Bush's son, Jeb. He figured there was even less appetite for a war against the sugar barons. Flowson President Jose Pepe Fanjul was a top donor to Vice President Bush's presidential campaign. So he waited until a few weeks before Election Day, when Bush was pledging to become the environmental president and was running ads attacking Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis over the filth in Boston Harbor. Leighton then filed a lawsuit in Miami without informing his superiors in the Justice Department, an unprecedented October surprise, end quote. Now, Governor Martinez tried to bring pressure on the Justice Department to get Leighton in to drop the suit, and Big Sugar and the Army Corps of Engineers also urged the Justice Department to drop the lawsuit. Grunwald writes, quote, Leighton was summoned to Washington where his bosses savaged him as a rogue prosecutor and disloyal Republican. But Leighton had forced them out on a limb, and sawing it off would have been a political fiasco. Leighton was never formally nominated for his job, and he was hounded by internal Justice Department investigations for the next four years, but he was allowed to pursue his phosphorus case, end quote. So it seems to me like Leighton was doing this because he really thought it was the right thing to do, and he was willing to take some lumps for doing it. Again, Leighton saw the case as being a straightforward one having to do with contaminated water and enforcing existing laws, but the state of Florida pushed back. Grunwald describes it as follows, quote, The result was a nasty legal quagmire funded by the public, with dozens of attorneys bickering, over half a million pages of documents, and quibbling over issues as mundane as where to hold depositions, end quote. And according to Grunwald, Lettinen was genuinely bothered by the degree to which Big Sugar controlled Florida's state politics and the bad consequences that flowed from that for the environment. In 1990, in the Florida gubernatorial campaign, the Democratic candidate Lawton Childs, who would win the election, opposed Leighton's lawsuit. However, in 1991, once he was in office, Lawton Childs decided to give in to Leighton on water demands, and they worked out a settlement plan to reduce phosphorus in the Everglades' water, but the sugar industry uh, quickly filed their own lawsuits in an effort to avoid the financial hit that the settlement would cause for them. The sugar industry was not happy with the uh, settlement that, Ch- that Childs had reached with Leighton because the settlement included things like phosphorus reductions, acreage reductions, and requirements for the sugar companies to help pay for some of the environment- environmental restoration to try in some way to fix the Everglades. After 1992, Bill Clinton's interior secretary, who was Bruce Babbitt, sought a consensus Everglades cleanup plan and tried to come up with one that Big Sugar would be okay with. The problem was that in the process of trying to do that, they would alienate many environmentalists. Grunwald explains why. He says that in the eyes of environmentalists, sugar growers, quote, were about to escape a federal court order, extend their cleanup deadlines, and foist most of the bill for their pollution onto the taxpayers, end quote. And one group that opposed this deal with Big Sugar were the Mikasuki tribe, who actually hired Dexter Leighton, who is now in private practice, to be a lawyer for them. 
Now, elsewhere in terms of laws and things, the 1990 U.S. Water Resources Development Act, which was a federal law, made environmental restoration officially one of the tasks of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The 1990 Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Everglades Protection Act, which was a Florida state act, gave the South Florida Water Management District the power to take over farmland in order to restore it to wetland status. And a few years later, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the champion of protecting the Everglades, asked that her name be taken off this thing because she believed it was, in practice, much, much too favorable to the interest of sugar growers. And she even wrote to Governor Lawton Childs, quote, I disapprove of it wholeheartedly. And Michael Grunwald describes a big part of the problem with this act, quote, the Douglas Act delayed the final phosphorus standards until 2006 and included loopholes that left it unclear whether there would even be final standards, end quote. In 1992, the Congress called for the Army Corps of Engineers to do a study about re-engineering the entire CNSF project in South Florida. The Everglades Agricultural Privilege Tax on Agricultural Land in the EAA, and this, by the way, this tax was part of what became known as the Everglades Forever Act, was supposed to make Big Sugar pay a lot of the cost of trying to fix up the Everglades. However, one unintended side effect of this was to incentivize people who were in ranching and in non-sugar farming activities to convert more of their acreage to sugar. And the reason was, if you've got to pay these new taxes for doing agriculture in the EAA, well, it helps if you have a relatively high and stable profit margin crop, and that is, thanks to U.S. government policies, sugar. So in order to cover the tax that came out of the Everglades Forever Act, which is what the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Act was renamed, more people started growing more sugar. And by the mid to late 90s, as the phosphorus was going down, although it was still too high to be good for the Everglades, some scientists began to think that sugar growing might even be a little bit less of a problem than something called soil subsidence to the Everglades, which soil subsidence is when drained soil is exposed to oxygen, which previously it had been, you know, underwater. When it's exposed to oxygen, this causes it to decompose and subside, and then this process releases natural nitrogen and phosphorus, and this may have also been a big contributor to the problem with the Everglades, which, of course, that would be coming from all of the agricultural activity in the EAA, not just sugar. Although, you know, when I look at it, I think, well, yeah, but sugar is also pumping tons of uh, phosphorus into the, into the water as well on top of that. So anyway, and then as I, as I covered in the Draining the Swamp episode, you get the so-called Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan passed in... Um, it was either late 2000 or early 2001, which a lot of environmental groups weren't sold on to begin with. And then in practice, actually working it out has been extremely problematic. There's been resistance to every single step of the way and repeated studies by various government and non-government groups as to how the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan has been going, is being implemented. Repeatedly, these studies checking in on progress say, yeah, they're like way behind what they said they were going to do. They're not even doing some of it at all. So it's... You know, it's a very problematic thing. In fact, as early as 2004, the Sierra Club officially turned against the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, saying that 
President George W. and Governor Jeb Bush had turned away from the goal of seriously trying to restore the Everglades as much as possible. And to this day, there's you know articles coming out in, in, in very recent years about how the sugar companies are still trying to resist a lot of efforts to fix elements of the environment, even though they occasionally will compromise on something. And of course, they always want to make a big public deal of patting themselves on the back when they actually um, agree to some, you know, minor tweak or whatever. But they continue to still get away with a lot. And in some cases, when they get out of sugar, they get into other things that, you know, may not be much better. But I want to just talk a little bit about Big Sugar's influence on health and science. And I'm not going to get into all the details on this, a great book um, to start with, and there are others as well, is a book called The Case Against Sugar by author Gary Tobbs. But anyway, the sugar industry has, for close to a century, been involved in science and really largely kind of pseudoscience and trying to um, influence the course of legit science in order to make sugar appear better for your health than it really seems to be. So in 1928, the sugar industry created something called the Sugar Institute, which was a trade association which was designed to get Americans to up their sugar consumption because at that time there was a fair amount of competition in sugar and there was a glut overall in the world market and this was lowering prices. Gary Taubes writes, quote, The mission of the Sugar Institute was, in part, to promote a new code of ethics that would get everyone in the industry working together. It would also promote directly to the public the joys and benefits of eating and drinking sugar, because getting Americans to increase their sugar consumption was a good way of bringing supply and demand in line, end quote. And so this Sugar Institute sponsored advertisements to do things like promote sugar as a health food. I am not kidding you. In 1931, the U.S. Department of Justice prosecuted the Sugar Institute for anti-competitive price-fixing type practices, and after appealing to the Supreme Court and losing, the Institute was done away with in 1936. But in 1943, the sugar industry created a new version of this, minus the kind of, you know, price-fixing type stuff, called the Sugar Research Foundation, or SRF, and again... One of its main purposes was to sell the public on the health benefits of sugar and to fund science to do this and so on. And in 1951, this organization was renamed as the Sugar Association Incorporated, or just Sugar Association. The Sugar Association spent millions of dollars in academia and millions of dollars on PR. And basically, the sugar industry was doing what the tobacco industry was doing at the exact same time, which was spending mountains of cash to try to create the science they wanted that played up the benefits and played down the harm of their particular product. They did what they could, for example, in the 1950s to steer dentists away from recommending that people cut sugar for the good of their teeth and instead in favor of just saying, ah, brush more often. In the 1960s and 70s, they also spent massive amounts of money funding studies and PR against artificial sweeteners, trying to act like these were much more dangerous than sugar. The sugar industry has continued to battle against growing awareness of the health problems of excessive sugar consumption via the Sugar Association. In fact, the Sugar Association is part of the current Dietary Guidelines Alliance, 
along with other food industry groups and the USDA and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So from their spot on the Dietary Guidelines Alliance, the Sugar Association has been able to moderate some of the official warnings and statements that come out about health problems that come from eating too much sugar. In 2003, the Sugar Association also tried to pressure the U.S. Congress into pressuring the World Health Organization against recommending that sugar should be no more than 10% of a healthy diet. In a recent article exposing some of the Sugar Research Foundation slash Sugar Association's effects on scientific research and the so-called consensus in this field was the September 2016 New York Times article, How the Sugar Industry Shifted Blame to Fat by Anna Had O'Connor. And I will, of course, link to this in the show notes. O'Connor writes, quote, The sugar industry paid scientists in the 1960s to play down the link between sugar and heart disease and promote saturated fat as the culprit instead. Newly released historical documents show, end quote. The article then refers to a more scholarly article, which was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine. This article was based on thousands of pages of primary historical sources of correspondence between scientists and the sugar industry that were recently discovered by a researcher named Kristen Kearns in the Harvard Archives. The Sugar Research Foundation, which again today is the Sugar Association, quote, paid three Harvard scientists the equivalent of about $50,000 in today's dollars to publish a 1967 review of research on sugar, fat, and heart disease. The studies used in the review were handpicked by the Sugar Group, and the article, which was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, minimized the link between sugar and heart health and cast aspersions on the role of saturated fats. The Harvard scientists and sugar executives with whom they collaborated are no longer alive. One of the scientists who was paid by the sugar industry was D. Mark Hegstead, who went on to become the head of nutrition at the United States Department of Agriculture, where in 1977 he helped draft the forerunner to the federal government's dietary guidelines, end quote. By the way, in 2015, Coca-Cola gave millions of dollars to researchers in order to fund studies that played down the links between sugary beverages and obesity. I can't imagine why. So this stuff is still going on. The New York Times article goes on to say that the Sugar Association responded to the Journal of American Medical Association article exposing all this by saying that, well, you know, back then, the medical journals didn't require scholars to disclose where their funding was coming from. Oh, okay. Of course, this research and the way that the narrative was steered and the way that the consensus was influenced by these essentially bribes led to several decades of everyone recommending low-fat and high-sugar, high-carb foods for health reasons. By the way, during those decades, obesity rates went up dramatically. The New York Times article quotes a Dr. Stanton Glantz, who is one of the co-authors of the scholarly article that exposed all this, as saying, quote, It was a very smart thing the sugar industry did, because review papers, especially if you get them published in a very prominent journal, tend to shape the overall scientific discussion, end quote. 
And this is, I think, a very interesting point, a very important point regarding science and academic scholarship in general. There tends to be this very strong intellectual conformity so that if you can get a sort of paradigm established in a handful of prestigious places, it can then become the reigning orthodoxy literally for generations of scholars in that field because of the nature of how things like graduate school, getting hired at a university and getting tenure, how these things work. Positive outcomes for scholars usually have more to do with conforming to the reigning orthodoxies in the field than with raising any serious questions about the whole thing. And, you know, somebody like Thaddeus Russell, for example, talks about this all the time, and I've mentioned it as well. The New York Times article then goes on to say that this was a key part of getting researchers and policymakers, and thus ultimately average consumers, to not really look for a long time at sugar as a bad thing for your health, even though there were other studies at the time that were saying the opposite of what these scientists were being paid to say. There were legit studies at the time saying, no, actually sugar is as much, possibly much more of a, of a problem, of a threat to your health than fat. But those studies were just overlooked by the scholars putting together this prestigious review article who were taking money from the sugar industry. So it shows you that through these sorts of means – if you've got some money and you're willing to throw it around, you can, with you know, kind of a surprising amount of cheapness and easiness, you can control the narratives and the paradigm in some field of inquiry or science or scholarship by simply controlling what sorts of questions are allowed to be asked and by controlling what sorts of questions, what sorts of answers are allowed to even be considered and looked into as answers to those questions. So there's there are analogous things happening in many other fields of scholarship, including the quote-unquote social sciences, things like history and economics, all the way through up to the present day, I can tell you. The New York Times article quotes the current chairman of the nutrition department at the Harvard School of Public Health as saying that these revelations were a reminder of, quote, why research should be supported by public funding rather than depending on industry funding. End quote. And I kind of agree with the point that you shouldn't rely entirely on industry that's fund on, on research that's funded by an actual industry. But on the other hand, um, to say that the state funding it just sort of automatically solves the problem. To me, that's very problematic as well as a solution because state funding, government funding for scientific and medical research and things like that is just as potentially corruptible and just as potentially prone to conflicts of interest as industry funding. And in fact, it's not that hard as we've seen with um, the revolving door, public choice economics, regulatory capture, all these sorts of concepts that happen again and again and again and again in the real world. It's not that hard to see that even if you made all these sorts of studies from now on funded by the government, no problem for the industry to grease the right palms in the government, right? And then again, the government itself has its own interests and its own conflicts of interests that might also, even without industry intervention, which of course there would be, but even if for the sake of argument, we assume that magically this will be the one time where regulatory capture and all these things doesn't happen, then still the government itself as an institution has its own interests, which may potentially and often are contrary to the well-being of kind of the general population, the average citizen. 
Anyway, like I said, I'll link to this article amongst the many other things I'm linking to in the show notes for this episode so that you can read the whole thing for yourself if you so desire. And just before I close out this episode, I want to mention a little bit more about kind of big sugar in recent times, particularly big sugar in Florida. And all those things about, you know, bribing scientists and whatever, it wasn't just the Florida sugar growers who were involved with that. It was the sugar industry generally, including cane growers from other parts of the country and the beet sugar growers and everything. That was an industry-wide thing. But again, just bringing it up as a way to illustrate like how many ways the sugar industry in general and the Florida sugar growers in particular are just, you know, profiting from screwing people. And not just in terms of ripping them off at the grocery store um, checkout counter, but even, you know, they're willing to throw your health under the bus in order to keep uh, their profits up. But anyway, big sugar in recent times. Today, the big three of Florida sugar companies are number one, Florida, Florida Crystals Flow Sun, which is the fan holes. Number two, U.S. Sugar. And number three, um, a group founded when a bunch of medium-sized growers banded together a long time ago called Florida Sugar Growers Cooperative, which I mentioned before, um, they also funnel a lot of their sugar through the fan holes um, processing and kind of retail channels. The two largest companies, which, you know, Florida Sugar Growers Cooperative is kind of a distant third. The two largest companies that comprise big sugar in Florida, USSC, U.S. Sugar, and Flowsun, had evolved to being very different companies by the end of the 20th century. USSC, by the late 20th century, was actually 49% employee-owned and 51% owned by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, whereas Flowsun is still kind of a family empire. Flowsun's headquarters is in the city of Palm Beach, relatively far from the actual cane fields, while USSC's headquarters is right in Clewiston, which is right in the middle of the cane fields. And Clewiston is really a company town. And to be fair, USSC has actually over the years built a lot for the town. You know, things like parks, playgrounds, community centers, etc. Flowsun, right, the fan holes, not so much. You know, they, they do do some charitable things. I, I won't pretend like they don't. I think they've helped fund some hospitals and things, but it's not to the same degree that they're tied in the, the community and things as USSC. Gail Hollander writes, quote, production and place are fused in USSC, whereas the image of Flowson is distant, corporate and placeless, end quote. Like I've kind of mentioned before, USSC's PR has tried to undo a lot of the sugar baron image for their company. And to a large extent, their propaganda has focused on nationalism. You know, they're called United States Sugar. They're the American Sugar Company. And also on the company's ties to the local community, that sort of thing. Whereas in recent years, Flowsun's PR for its products has tended to focus more on themes of natural you know, cooking naturally. Sugar is a natural sweetener, etc., right? And of course, we all know that anything natural is good for you, right? Yeah, r right. <laughs> Except how many poisons are totally natural, right? How many things that are terrible for you are 100% natural? Anyway, a lot of Flow Sun's advertising and marketing has in recent years focused on so-called specialty sugars rather than on standard generic refined white sugar. Basically, they're trying to appeal to the hipster, you know, organic, natural, whatever market. 
So Gail Hollander writes on recent Flow Sun Marketing, quote, The company strategically approached the high-end growth sector of the food market by developing organic and heritage sugars, a minimally processed granulated sugar and organic cane syrup for use in industrial food processing, end quote. And Flowson and USSC, as I've kind of indicated throughout this episode, often have kind of a rival-type relationship, although they are willing to sometimes cooperate when they have a common interest. So, for example, Florida sugar interests banded together and fought unsuccessfully against the Central American Free Trade Agreement in 2004 and 5. And Hollander writes of this, and this happens again and again, quote, Struggles over trade packs lead to strange political alliances, and the sugar industry, long a popular symbol of corrupt agribusiness, found itself on the same side of the CAFTA debate with left-of-center Democrats and labor unions, end quote. In 2004, USSC built an ultra-modern, state-of-the-art high-tech mill, and with that, they've been able to cut their workforce and thus cut costs. And that's something they've been in recent years kind of relying on to keep themselves afloat. Although, of course, the U.S. government sugar program largely remains as well to make this whole thing possible in the first place. Um, Flowson, in recent years, by contrast, has often followed a strategy of trying to influence federal policy when possible in order to get the government to create a subsidized sugar ethanol program for vehicle fuel similar to the corn ethanol program. So, for example, Florida Crystals and Florida International University jointly received a $1 million grant from the state government of Florida in order to do research on Florida on sugar ethanol some years back. When this happened, Pepe Van Hool was quoted in the newspaper as saying he hoped that sugar ethanol would reduce U.S. dependence on foreign petroleum. Yet again, a theme we bumped into a bunch earlier on, the defense of sugar's corporate welfare is that it is linked to some sort of national security and self-sufficiency. Gail Hollander writes, quote, Ethanol was the perfect weapon to divide and conquer. USSC, the Florida Sugar King Growers Cooperative, and smaller growers remained skeptical, sensing a Trojan horse perhaps, while Flowson, with extensive holdings not only in Florida but also in the Dominican Republic, saw a moment of political and economic opportunity, end quote. And here's what she means by that. The U.S. doesn't have a policy of free trade with regard to sugar, but it does have a pretty wide-open trade policy in regard to ethanol from the Caribbean. So if the U.S. were to start having a lot of sugar ethanol for vehicle use, then who's well-placed to take advantage of that? None other than the fanholes with their massive sugar lands in the Dominican Republic close to the U.S., and already the U.S.'s number one foreign source of sugar. Now these days, and and for a while, Brazil, not Cuba, is the largest and lowest cost producer of sugar in the world. And most likely, if the U.S. ever adopted a true free trade policy in regard to sugar, a lot of American sugar would come from Brazil, and then, you know, some would come still from the Dominican Republic, and um, if the U.S. opened up trade with Cuba from there as well, no doubt. And little or none would be produced domestically because it doesn't make economic sense if you have free trade to do that. Now, I'm skeptical that free trade in sugar is coming anytime soon to the U.S., but a lot of 
Florida sugar companies have looked to other things as well to diversify into other things alongside sugar. And I don't know if it's just because they're scared that free trade might magically happen for sugar in the U.S., or if it's that they're worried about um, environmental rules and things eventually driving them out of business, you know, as if the comprehensive Everglades restoration project actually really gets going in a significant way, will that be a problem for them? But regardless, they're looking to diversify. So for example, Sugarcane Growers Cooperative has started to look at limestone mining in order to supplement their income, and the Fanhul family wants to develop massive amounts of their lands, including some which currently have sugar on them in Florida, into residential developments. And the fact of the matter is that both of those things might potentially be more damaging to the environment of the Everglades and to Florida's environment in general than would the continued growing of sugarcane, especially considering there are some newer methods of cultivating sugarcane that aren't as destructive as kind of what had traditionally been done. Gail Hollander writes, quote, It is a wonder that the agrarian myth served so long and so well to undergird the interests of these corporations, whose concentrated ownership and control of massive amounts of Florida real estate is now, as they diversify from sugar farming to rock mining and residential construction, rendering the imagined geography of a restored Everglades even more fantastical, end quote. So basically, in a nutshell, what's the case against the Florida sugar barons, a.k.a. Big Sugar? Well, from the get-go, their entire industry has been created and sustained as profitable only due to massive amounts of subsidies, in some cases directly, more commonly indirectly, but still subsidies nonetheless, and very important protection instituted by the U.S. government in order to work counter to natural free trade and free market types of forces. As taxpayers and as consumers, everyone who is not in the sugar industry, which is the overwhelming majority, both of Floridians and Americans, everyone who's not in that industry has had to pay for this whole thing in terms of higher taxes to fund all these different, you know, drainage things and whatever, and also um, higher sugar prices all the time. Again, the U.S. sugar price typically runs between two and three times the general world sugar price. Furthermore, that same industry has, um, with the assistance of the government in most cases, at least up through the 1990s, engaged in labor practices that are extremely problematic at best. And in the case of the Fan Hools, they've kept a lot of the similar but even worse labor practices going right on up through the present in their Dominican Republic plantations. All the while, in South Florida, the sugar barons have been major contributors to wrecking the ecosystem, particularly in regards to the greater Everglades, and they've tried and often succeeded to minimize their own financial burden in trying to mitigate some of that damage. The sugar industry is also as a whole, again, not just Florida cane growers, but the whole industry, helped contribute to countless health problems in Americans in order to up their profits. And they've been quite happy to basically bribe scientists into covering up the real relationships between sugar and obesity and all the other, you know, heart problems and, and so on that come out of that. And in some ways I consider myself having been a victim of some of that because I'm a guy who's 
a portly gentleman um, for much of my life, and I've, I've dealt with weight issues on and on. And I can remember as a youngster and a teenager in the 80s and early 90s, everyone from doctors to parents to, you know, teachers to everyone saying that the key to being healthy and slim and avoiding health problems is to eat a lot of carbs and sugar and, and eat very little fat. And I followed everyone's advice. And a lot of you who you know, live through the same time period can probably remember shit like snack wells, cookies and and crackers and things like that, where, oh, it's low fat, it's healthy. And a lot of those things, they would actually have more sugar than the non-low fat alternative and um, to compensate, you know, in terms of flavor. And so, you know, literally these things have consequences. If you're bribing scientists into saying that sugar really isn't that bad for you and fat's much worse and you know, it's better to have sugar than fat, etc., and all these sorts of things. Well, then doctors are going to give that advice. Parents are going to give that advice to children. Authority figures all over the place are going to be repeating this. And then people who don't know any better, especially if they're younger or if they're not very knowledgeable about this sort of stuff, they're going to take that advice and it's going to make them more fat and unhealthy, not less. And when it does that, they'll probably be told, oh, you just need to double down on the low fat, high carbon sugar stuff. And I'm not at all saying that, you know, people who have issues with weight are completely not at fault for it or anything like that. But I'm also saying that it is a contributing factor when you have scientists being bribed into basically giving with all the authority they have in their prestigious journals and positions, giving counterproductive nutritional advice for generations. And also American sugar protectionist policies um, harmed a lot of Latin American and Caribbean countries' economies who, under conditions of free trade, could potentially sell a lot of sugar to America at a reasonable market price and in the process help better themselves and their their country and, you know, maybe pay off their, their debts and things. But instead, American consumers are forced to subsidize the likes of the fan holes. So the politics of American sugar is a game that harms countless people in ways large and small, and mostly benefits a tiny group of multi, multi, multi-millionaires. And as such, it is a absolute prime archetype of public choice economics and political entrepreneurship at work in the real world, and an egregious illustration of one of the many, many ways in which the U.S. economy is, to put it mildly, not really a free market. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. 
If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.